Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of the I was at that point a generation with children. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, Normal guys, let me take on take the headphones off because I don't have to listen to the intro again. <laughs> a great song though. It is a great yeah, song. I'd, I'd love to shake the author's hand. Yeah, but unfortunately he's not here. But uh, he has a good excuse because it is Mother's Day, yeah, and, and when yeah. I scheduled this, I didn't realize you know I, I must be a heartless, unfeeling individual. <laughs> even though I did talk to my mom for about two hours, so. You know, it's mother. It's Mother's Day today. Well, we know this is a pre-record, but you know, hug your mom or something. So, Rob, uh, how you doing, man? We had the uh, two-hour and uh, thirty-minute marathon show that we did last uh, last week, uh, of which I think you were there for about an hour or so. Well, I ended up going with Scotty for about like an hour and God, maybe an hour thirty minutes. So it ended up being yeah, a very was, long show. It was, yeah, it was a good one. I haven't uh, I haven't had to try to cut it down yet. So <laughs> I yeah. looked at the link. We do another radio edit for IPBN. That's like uh, 
about like 55 minutes each. So that one might be a, might be a challenge. We're going to lose some info. <laughs> yeah, we may. Uh, so we are, uh, we're getting really excited guys. We're getting really close to the paradigm symposium. We're going to be packing our bags here in the next two days after we finish up today to, uh, go to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Right, from Nashville. On the road. Uh, it's going to be like about a 13 hour drive for us, but uh, we're hoping that it's inc- incredibly worth it uh, to get to Minneapolis and we're going to have a table there. So if anybody is hearing this in the next uh, few days, you know, we'd love for you guys to come out and shake our hands and, and see us. Uh, we will be there with uh, Luke and also Joe Damari, who we've had on the show quite a lot. He's been on the 50th episode. He was on the hundredth episode and he's also known as Prime for anybody that might be listening to the earlier shows. And we used to give him a code name. <laughs> and Mr. Robert Hyde will also be joining us out there, too. Um, he's the uh, Christian libertarian, as we like to call him. So uh, we're looking forward to hobnobbing it with some really – a lot of people that have been on the show. Micah Hanks, who we've had here in the studio with us. Uh, Peter Robbins, we've had in the show. Nick Redfern. Uh Scotty Roberts, of course, John Ward, all the uh, Rocky Succi, all those guys, and that's going to be a blast, Rob. Oh so, man, it's going to be great. I've, I think you're ready to go. I am. <laughs> I'm packed. I've got all my. I've got everything sorted out. I just need to break down the studio and make it mobile. And <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's gonna. It's. It's. We're gonna be. We're gonna be hitting the road, and we're gonna hopefully do be doing some uh, interviews while we're out there. Oh, yeah. I don't know quite exactly how many hours we're going to have once <laughs> we're done, but it, it 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 may be epic. And I don't think we're going to uh, we're I don't think we're going to put that all up as one big show. I think that's going to be like a uh, maybe two or three shows because in June you'll be gone to hitting the Rue. Yeah. So Ugh. like, well, Bonnaroo for you <laughs> is not fun. It's not. So kind of like describe <laughs> what you do over there, man. With like, well, first of all, Bonnaroo. <laughs> anybody may not know what Bonnaroo is. It's a big festival here. Uh, but like an hour south of us in Manchester, Tennessee. Yeah, it's a giant four-day music festival. They've Everybody got, takes drugs. Yeah, they've got five large stages and a bunch of smaller stages, huge campground area. It's, you know, if you want to go see a whole bunch of good music and get away for a weekend, it, 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 I can see how it could be fun. But but for Rob, it's not very much fun. For Rob, it's 20-hour days in the heat and the mud and <laughs> <laughs> living out of a truck and... And living in a hotel. If you can get to the hotel, yeah. Yeah. What's been your experience with that? Uh, you know, try to, like, didn't you have, like, a hotel that was, like, an hour and a half away or something to where you might as well have just stayed in Nashville and just commuted back and forth? Yeah, basically, we, we, yeah, we, uh, we sleep wherever we can when that happens. Wow. It's Who, like, what's the lineup over there now? Uh, this year. Of this year. Oh, shoot, who is it? Pearl Jam is the headliner. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Which I find interesting. You know, he's following like Elton John and yeah. um, Paul McCartney and following some giants there. The one, the, the one band I'm most excited about, though, is Ween. Ween. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I know about Ween is push the little daisies to make them come up. Yeah. Apparently, there's some really accomplished <laughs> musicians. Well, they're, they're strange. They're strange as it gets. Yeah, that's a very it. strange song. What was it? Push the little daisies and make them come up. <laughs> I can't even do that, man. <laughs> uh, well, I was, 
scrolling Facebook as we were doing the intro, and I saw something interesting coming from from Vice, which we kind of complained about Vice on the last show. Mm. This is one of their channels called Broadly. Here's the headline. Gandhi was a racist who forced young girls to sleep in bed with him. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, part of my... I think part of my uh, optimistic worldview has been destroyed. Uh, here's a little things from this. Uh, my maternal grandfather went to jail with Gandhi in 1933. So I grew up, this is the author saying this. So I grew up knowing this myth was cobbled together from half truths. Talk about the myth of uh, Gandhi, I guess. My grandfather took the lesson he learned in jail to begin an ashram in the bowels of West Bengal. As a consequence, my parents raised me with intimate understanding of Gandhi that teetered between laudatory and critical. My family adored him, though we never really bought into the idea that he single-handedly orchestrated India's independence movement. This to say nothing of Gandhi's bigotry, which we didn't touch in our household. In the decades since his assassination in 1948, the image of Gandhi has been constructed so carefully, scrubbed clean of its grimy details, that it's easy to forget that he predicated his rhetoric on anti-blackness, a vehement allergy to female sexuality, and a general unwillingness to help liberate the Dalit or untouchable caste. Gandhi lived in South Africa for over two decades, from 1893 to 1914, working as a lawyer and fighting for the rights of Indians and only Indians. To him, as he expressed quite plainly, black South Africans were barely human. He referred to them using the derogatory South African slur, Kaffir. He lamented that Indians were considered little better, if at all, than savages or the natives of Africa. In 1903, he declared that the white race in South Africa should be the predominating race. After getting thrown in jail in 1908, he scoffed at the fact that Indians were classed with black, not white prisoners. Some South African activists have thrust these parts of Gandhi's thinking back into the spotlight, as did a book published this past September by two South African academics, but they've barely made a dent on the American cultural consciousness beyond the concentric circles of Tumblr. Around the same time, Gandhi began cultivating the misogyny he'd carry with him for the rest of his life. During his years in South Africa, he once responded to a young man's sexual harassment of two of Gandhi's female followers by forcibly cutting the girl's hair short to make sure they didn't invite any sexual intention. Michael Connellan, writing in The Guardian, carefully explained that Gandhi felt women surrendered their humanity the minute men raped them. Wow. He operated under the assumption that men couldn't control their basic predatory impulses while simultaneously asserting that women were responsible for and completely at the mercy of these impulses. His views on female sexuality were summarily deplorable. According to Rita Banarji writing in Sex and Power, Gandhi viewed menstruation as the manifestation of the distortion of a woman's soul by her sexuality. He also believed the use of contraceptives was a sign of whoredom. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> I I I'm uh I think I'm in shock here, man. He confronted this inability to control male libido head on when he vowed celibacy without discussing it with his wife back in India and using women, including some underage girls like his grandniece, to test his sexual patients. He'd sleep naked next to them in bed without touching them, making sure he didn't get aroused. These women were props to coax him into celibacy. Huh. Yeah, well, I used to have faith in humanity. Yeah. I I uh 
There's a Western impulse to view Gandhi as a quiet annihilator of caste. That's the caste system in India. Right. A characterization that it's categorically false. He viewed the emancipation of Dalits, that's the untouchables, as an untenable goal and felt that they weren't worth a separate electorate. He insisted instead that Dalits remain complacent, waiting for a turn that history never gave them. Dalits continue to suffer from the direct results of prejudices sewn into the cultural fabric of India. Well, <laughs> I guess so much for the uh, proponent of nonviolence. I, <laughs> don't, I, I don't. I, I, I guess that just proves that how much we idolize people. That. They're still a product of the time that they live in. Yeah. Person's a person. I mean. I Like I said, I just ran across that just like a couple, like five minutes ago, man. That's the- <laughs> it's funny because it reminds me of, um, there was, Penn and Teller had a TV show. I can't remember what it was called. Um, was this the bullshit show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They did, there was one, um, one where they, I can't remember what the, title of it was but the theme was basically um people who that who are held up as you know better than yeah better held than up on a or whatever yeah. it was yeah they, they talked a little bit about that and they talked about mother Teresa too and a lot of the same light it, it's it sounded very similar to that like yeah she, Alyssa she was, was talking about that the other day with us i remember what you <laughs> yeah yeah i remember that but it, it was it was um you know basically yeah she was she was everything she said that that they say that she was to her people but she was also very um racist and bigoted towards other sections of humanity in the same way that that sounds like Gandhi was. Well, there was something like she didn't really like, she didn't really care about poor people. And there was something like that, that, that Alyssa was talking about. That, uh, yeah. That, I don't, that, I don't want to say, cause I wish I could remember yeah, what it was about. Yeah, but I think it was, we may need to, uh, let's look <laughs> that up and we'll, we'll hit that in the outro. Okay. Uh, guys, we have uh Timothy Furnish coming on. He is, a scholar of Islam. No, he's not Islamic himself, but he is a uh, he's a he's a professor. Uh, he's worked for I believe for the 101st or the 82nd Airborne. I get those two confused, but we'll straighten that out here when we go to the interview. So, guys, uh, we're going to go to him, and we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspira Normal, and we have the guest on the line. And and this is one that uh, I've been really um, excited about having on. And we, we've talked a lot about, on this show, about Islam. We've kind of skirted around the whole issue of Islam and what's going on with it right now. And I thought it would be a good idea to get someone that knows about the history of Islam, the various sects of Islam and those, and those type of things. So we can kind of learn about this subject that is so pervasive in our news right now. We can kind of learn those basics about it. Uh, you know, we talk about a lot about this with Stephen Ogden about his, uh, his experiences living over in Europe. And I do kind of want to touch on that as well, but I have a uh, Dr. Timothy Furnish, um, who was in, who, is an Arab linguist, uh, was in the 101st Airborne Division, as we found out, was used to be here in Clarksville, as we were talking about before we started the interview. Uh, research specializations of Islamic eschatology, 
Mahdism, Islamic fundamentalism, jihadism, the hidden imam, and how all those things relate to to what's going on now with modern politics. And he's also a huge J.R.R. Tolkien fan, which Rob is a huge fan as well of fantasy. I am, I so, am indeed. Dr. Furnish, welcome to Conspira Normal. Glad to be here. Thanks, sir. We're glad to have you. Uh, what I wanted to get started with was talking about where Islam comes from, how it was founded. I mean, a lot of people know about the kind of the basics of Muhammad and maybe who he was, but I'm also curious about whether there is any influence on Muhammad from both Judaism and Christianity. Well, uh, there's no way there could not be influences of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Uh, And in fact, Islam... Most Islamic scholars and historians will uh, in, ex- implicitly, if not explicitly, acknowledge that. I mean, Muslims will say, particularly, again, their, their theologians and their ulama, their clerics, will say that uh, Islam is the corrective to Judaism and Christianity. Uh, they believe that, in a theological sense, that Judaism and Christianity were both revelations from God, but yet the, the, um, uh, the movers and shakers, I guess, if you will, of both religions managed to mess up the religion, to mess up the revelation, and then God, they, they believe again. Uh, and let me hasten to add, I don't believe this because I'm a Christian, sure. but they believe that Islam, uh, the, that, that, that God then sent Muhammad with uh, the revelation Muslims believe of the Quran to correct the mistakes that the other two religions have made. So uh, that, that's their idea. I mean, but as a historian, uh, it's clear... Um, that Islam owes a great deal of debt to Judaism and Christianity, as well as to the, you know, the the polities that existed beforehand, uh, notably the Roman Empire, uh, uh, to a certain extent, I guess you could argue the Persian Empire. But Muhammad came along in the 7th century AD. The dates that are usually given for him are 570 to 632 AD. And one thing I do need to say about this is that there's a great deal that is taught in public schools, in colleges and universities and disseminated in the media about Islam. And, and, we, and we all know that this sort of like quantum leaped ahead after 9-11, right? I mean, there were a lot of Americans that were knew almost nothing about Islam before 9-11. Sure, And absolutely. unfortunately, there's still a lot that don't know as much as they think they do since yes. 9-11. But yes. it has become much more a topic of study, it's, it's, it's clear to see. And also, <clears throat> a, a, a very important fact that we can probably come back to later is the huge increase in the number of Muslims in the United States since 9/11, um, which I think has a certain has a certain amount to do with giving the lie to this idea that there's rampant Islamophobia in America. Before 9/11, there were about 900,000 Muslims, certainly less than a million, or I should say, fewer than a million Muslims in America, and maybe a thousand mosques. And the metrics now that that you look at that that, that are that are honest about this show about three and a half million Muslims, and somewhere north of 2,000 mosques. So. Um, Islam has certainly grown a great deal in this country. It's the third largest religion behind, of course, Christianity and, this, and Judaism. Far behind, of course, you know, 250 million Christians in America, right? Uh, several million Jews, and then a couple of million Muslims, uh, two, three million. So, uh, but 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 that has had a lot to do, I think, with people trying to learn more about it. Unfortunately, um, a, a great deal, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, a great deal of what is taught about Islam may not be true. Starting with, for instance, the fact that Muhammad is said to have lived from 570 to 632 A.D., there are no corroborating sources outside of Islamic ones for those dates of Muhammad. Uh, and 
just so folks know, uh, I get here I'm speaking as a, mainly as a historian. Any event, any person in history, historians like to have more than one source, uh, you know, corroborating, something to back it up. And Islam, for the early history of Islam, we have no sources. I shouldn't say no. We have virtually no sources outside of the Islamic sources. Uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century A.D., late 6th century, early 7th century day, A.D., was pretty much a blank slate. Um, uh, you know, what is now Syria and Iraq and what is now Palestine and Israel and Egypt were part of the Byzantine Empire. Right. Before that, they'd been part of the Roman Empire. Uh, then of course, the Roman Empire, the Western part had collapsed. The Eastern, ports, Eastern part survived as the Byzantine Empire, which was a explicitly Christian empire. Uh, there have been a few forays by the Romans, particularly in the, uh, it, when it was uh, pre-Christian Rome, to, uh, to, to conquer Arabia, but uh, that didn't go anywhere. Um, so the, the, the interior of what is now Saudi Arabia, which is where, of course, where Muhammad and, and Islam comes from, was basically off the radar screen of all of the major empires at the time. Besides the Romans, there was this huge empire in Persia, what is now Iran, and, and that whole region, uh, which was at that time called the Sasanian Empire, which was Zoroastrian, which again, um, a lot of folks don't know about it. It was this strange sort of dualistic religion that goes way back into ancient times, maybe as old as Judaism, if not older. Uh, it had become the official religion of the, of the Persian Empire. Um, so uh, Islam, when Islam comes along, when Muhammad, um, well, I should say, when the, the, the first real knowledge that people outside of Arabia have of Islam is basically armies, armies riding forth to conquer, yeah. uh, which would be late in Muhammad's career or even after he had died. Again, perhaps it was in 632, who knows exactly. Uh, but um, there are some people, like, for instance, I don't, you know, Robert Spencer, who runs Jihad Watch, Robert, whom I know and whom I have a great deal of respect for, but with whom I do not always agree on everything. Uh, Robert said, Robert wrote a book a couple of years ago basically saying that Muhammad did not exist. And I, I think that's a that's a speculation too far for me. I yeah, think I, have, I have probably, heard I have heard that mm -hmm. as well. Uh, there was yeah. a uh, there's a history podcast that I've listened to called History of Byzantium, mm -hmm. and uh, of course they get into because you can't avoid it. They get into the Arab conquest, mm -hmm. and I don't know right. if it was him, but uh, there was but there was this guy that he this, the host was interviewing him that basically mm -hmm. said that that Muhammad never existed. And that basically it was this accretion uh, of it was accretion of later ideas uh, mm -hmm. starting in the well the next century I guess like the uh, the eighth century would have been the eighth century exactly yeah. exactly yeah I don't buy that. That, that that's sort of an updating of an old academic theory from the late seventies by two really brilliant scholars named Patricia Crone which is an unfortunate name for a woman isn't it mm. uh, Patricia Crone and Martin Hines. Uh, in a book called Hagarism, where they said basically Islam was, um, the Arabs, th their thesis basically was sort of that the Arabs started conquering, and then they needed a, a, uh, sort of a sort of a religious imperative to justify what they were doing. So they sort of dreamed right. up this religion of Islam, which was cobbled together from um, some late Jewish sects and some early Christian heretical sects. And then they plugged in this mythical prophet called Muhammad in order to, you know, to have a progenitor. So, but see, I think that's way too much speculation. I think, you know, applying Occam's razor here, it's just much easier to say that there was a guy called Muhammad that started this religion. So okay. that's where I go with. But, 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 but having said that, my point is that there's a great deal that's taught about Islam that, frankly, we don't know it to be factually true, starting with the dates that he lived, um, 
and 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 extending up into other issues uh, that are very problematic. Um, uh, so, anyway, so but the, but the given the sort of historical theological mythology that that that, that Muslims advance is again that Muhammad came along, uh, as I said, in those the, roughly in that time period, and brought the idea of one God to the Arabs, thus uniting them and turning their sort of nomadic, most of the Arabs at the time were nomads, sort of their nomadic fervor, their nomadic military abilities, uh, instead of turning it against each other, focusing it outward for conquest. Uh, And then uh, the conquest, by the time Muhammad died, most of the Arabian Peninsula was said to have been conquered by them. Um, And what's a very important thing to know about about Islam, too, is that it it, it is as much political as it is religion. Now, you know and probably a lot of your listeners know, and I know plenty of people, that try to argue that Islam is not a religion. Right. right? But, yeah. but that's simply, that, that's just frankly obtuse, okay? Uh, because it is a religion. Now, it has aspects that I find unappealing and that many people in the world find unappealing and certainly disagree with. Sure. Both as a person and, again, you know, as a Christian, I just simply reject it. But the, because I don't like something doesn't mean it's not a religion. Um, so... The fact is that Islam, although it's very political, and in many aspects, especially when it's understood literally and articulated and followed literally, it's violent, it is not thereby not a religion. It's simply a religion that's political and has violent aspects. So, so I think that's, I mean, you look at sociologically at Islam. I mean, it has, it has a deity. It has um, uh, sort of semi-divine figures, if you will, angels and jinn and things like that. It has an eschatology. It has a belief about the end of time. Uh, it has a heaven and a hell. It has a sacred book. It has a someone that claims to be speaking in the name of its God, a prophet. So therefore, it you know it fits all the all the sociological uh, definitions of religion. So, right. but Islam, uh, but Islam basically after Muhammad died again, probably sometime in the seventh century, uh, became uh, a very not just potent political and religious force, but military force, and spread. Um, Conquered the Holy Land, uh, Jerusalem, and environed Syria from the Byzantines. Uh, the Byzantines did manage, and also Egypt, I should mention. Egypt and part of North Africa was part of the Byzantine Empire. Those were conquered. The Byzantines lost probably in the 7th, 8th, 9th century. The Byzantines probably lost 40 to 50% of their territory. They managed to hold on to what is now Turkey, and of course they held on to their capital, Constantinople. Uh, for quite a while longer. The Persian Empire was not so lucky. The Arab <laughs> armies turned east went into what is now Iran, and the Persian Empire collapsed pretty quickly. Completely wiped um, out, yeah. Right. Uh, and then Muslim armies went west across North Africa, which, again, had been primarily Christian territory, but pockets of Jewish population spread throughout, uh, conquered across North Africa, and by the year 732 A.D., Muslim armies from North Africa, called often called the Moors in the old history books, uh, had conquered into Iberia, of course, it wasn't Spain and Portugal yet, but up into Iberia, and made it all the way by 732 uh, to uh, either Tours or Poitiers, France, depending on which uh, which town you wish to go with the battle being nearby, and were stopped by Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, and a Christian army. Um, so um, uh, that stabilized that border. But I just you know, last weekend, my uh, my sons and my wife and I watched uh, the movie El Cid. Remember El Cid with Charlton Heston? Yeah. Uh, 1961, which is an interesting movie, but it was set in the period, of course, the 11th century, when Christians were fighting Moors, and sometimes Christians were fighting Christians, and Moors were fighting Moors. This is the Reconquista, yeah. 
Yes, it was sort of the beginnings of the Reconquista, right, as they call it in what will later be Spain and Portugal, yes. So, so Islam expanded very quickly within just a century or two. Massive amounts of territory were conquered, and then carry on in the 9th and 10th century, there were Muslim conquests over into, into what is now India, uh, which is why, of course, now the subcontinent of India has places like Pakistan and Bangladesh, and about 10% of the population of India is, is Muslim. So... So it's very interesting. It's very unlike Christianity in that regard, because Christianity spent the first three centuries of its existence as a persecuted sect in the Roman Empire. Right. And a lot, a lot of people may know, some people don't, that, it, that Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire until Constantine legalized it in the early 4th century. Um, a lot of people sort of get this wrong. He did not, in fact, make Christianity the official religion of the empire. He favored it. He was the first emperor to admit being a Christian. Um, and he made it legal to be Christian, but it wasn't until about 90, 80 or 90 years later that another emperor made it the yeah. official religion. But It was Theodosius, said, I believe, that mm-hmm. finally made Christianity the state religion. Constantine right, was right. just it looking was, for a way to unite the Roman Empire in, in a certain way. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's one argument. I think there is something to that. They needed an ideology uh, to hold the empire yeah. together. And he wasn't uh, baptized till his deathbed. Mm-hmm. He was on his deathbed when he was actually baptized. Right. But, <laughs> But again, to be fair, that was common practice in the 3rd and 4th century A.D. Right. Because they had not developed, the theology was still developing, and there was an idea that, that you had to wait until the last moment to be baptized to make sure that your sins were taken care of. So hmm. that's often put forward as sort of an example of this political cynicism, but I don't think it necessarily is that. Yeah. But anyway, the point, however, is that Christianity, again, spent three centuries being persecuted, uh, and Christians were being persecuted. Uh, Islam... There were maybe there was maybe a decade or two when Muhammad was working in uh, when he had come back and started preaching in Mecca where they were eh, they were sort of persecuted some of them got beat up thrown in jail there were no 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 records and even the Islamic sources of of Muslims being killed by leaders but this this did have something to do with <clears throat> in the year 622 A.D. Uh, Muhammad again was said to have started preaching in 610. Uh, in 622 A.D., Muslims uh, under Muhammad left the city of Mecca and went to the city of Yathrib, which, re- which was renamed Medina, Medina Talnebi, the city of the prophet. This is what's called the Hijra, the emigration. And this is what's important about this is that this is when the Muslim calendar starts. The Muslims start the dating of their calendar from this Hijra in 622 A.D., um, and just real quickly, just so people know, you can't take the Western Christian year and subtract 622 and get the Muslim year because Muslims, the Muslim calendar is a lunar one, right? Uh, not a solar one. So the months are slightly different lengths sometimes. And then over the period, of course, 14. Yeah. I think we're in 1436 that's, AH right now. I have to look. AH, what's called after Hijra. That's why Ramadan moves um so mm-hmm. many times exactly. during the year. It's it's a different place just about every year. Exactly. Yeah. Ramadan can fall over the space of enough years. I don't know how many it is, but the cycle will be that the month of Ramadan, which is the month of fasting, when Muslims are supposed to fast from sunup to sundown, will fall over enough time period throughout every month of the Western calendar. So, uh, yes, that's why. A, a few years ago, when I guess it was not long after 9-11, about the time of 9-11 and thereafter, Ramadan was falling right around like the fall holidays and, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. So everyone thought that's when it was. And, you know, now it's what in the summer, I guess. So (laughs) exactly. Just keeps moving. So, so yeah. So, so Islam expands very quickly um, in terms of conquest. Most of the people that are conquered are not Muslim. However, most of the people that are conquered retain their religious identity, whether Zoroastrianism in the Persian empire or Christianity in, in west of there. 
And what happens is that Islam then put the Islamic rulers then developed a system and put in place called the Vimy system. It's in Arabic. It's transliterated as D H I M M I. I should say a person in the system is called a Vimy. The system is called Vimma, D H I M M A or D H I M M A H. And it, it literally means protected. And you'll often hear apologists say, well, it means they're being protected. I'm like, well, they're being protected in the same sense, I guess, that, you know, black Americans were being protected, uh, you know, before the civil rights legislation was passed, or maybe even in the you know 1850s or something. Right, right. Because right. a Vimma basically has very few rights, and, and a Vimma is a Jew or Christian under Islamic rule. Um, they, the same they, way they a mafia rights. don protects his the you know protects his clients in a way. Right. Yeah. Well, although I think it's probably better to be working for the don uh, because <laughs> there are certain things you can't do as a Vimmy. Uh, you know, you're not allowed, like, like churches or synagogues, new ones can never be built. No one can convert. This is where these apostasy laws come from in Islam. Hmm. You are not allowed to convert from Islam to the, to the minority religions. Um, Muslim men can marry a Jew or a Christian woman, in fact, multiple ones, as the Quran allows. Uh, but, but, a, but a Jewish or Christian man can never marry a Muslim woman. Um, it, there are even periods under certain Islamic rulers particularly the Fatimids of Egypt in the medieval period where, uh, where Jews and Christians had to wear basically clothing that marked them out as, as minorities. Um, uh, they aren't allowed to ride horses. Um, they can't build, their buildings can never be more than like one story. Um, but, but basically what this amounted to was a great deal of social pressure that eventually resulted in the majority, not all, but the majority of people living in these conquered areas converting to Islam because they just finally figured it wasn't worth the trouble to keep putting up with this daily drip, drip, drip of discrimination. Uh, What's amazing to me is that so many people did not uh, convert. Like, for instance, you know, about 10% of Egypt is still Coptic Christian, which is amazing to me. We have a Uh, lot of them here in Nashville, actually. Cops? Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So... So, so that that's sort of how the expansion came about, and it's Islam, you know, very very much in, in kind of world civilizational, world history terms. Islam was very much, um, very much expanded through land conquest. Uh, and what what happens is that, uh, to sort of take the long view, if you will, what happens is that the the the, the equation is greatly changed, of course, in the 15th century, when those pesky Western Europeans, starting with the Portuguese and the Spanish, and then later the English and the French, um, figure out how to sail and get really good at sailing and start sailing around the world. And they then, along with all the other things they do, but then they, they then expand their civilizations to you know, the Americas and to other places like Australia. Um, and they take with them, of course, their religion. And this is why, go look at a map of the world religions. And Christianity is in North America, South America, Russia, right. most of Europe, although we can talk about how Christian they still are in Europe, uh, Australia, Sub-Saharan Africa. These places are majority Christian. Islam is, is, is pretty much, um, it's, it's from you know, North Africa, that belt across North Africa, the Middle East, uh, down through Southeast Asia uh, into, of course, the largest uh, Muslim country, which is Indonesia, which, which was basically, basically, for the most part, um, 
uh, it's, it's one of the few places in history where Islam was actually spread mostly peacefully by traders, by, by seed-born traders and instead a lot of by conquest. A lot of people don't realize that Indonesia is actually the most populous Muslim country. Right, about 240 million and I think yeah. 80% Muslim or something. Right. You have East Timor, right. which is predominantly Christian, but they're one little sliver in the Indonesian archipelago, you know. Right, right. I want to right. ask about, um, and this is this is another term that you hear all the time. And I think for Rob here, a lot of this is new stuff. <laughs> so yeah, he's yeah. really kind of soaking it in. Very much. But uh, as, a, as, as a student almost. Um, the difference between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. And this mm-hmm. is very important right now, especially when you have Saudi Arabia. There's almost like a, a, a two different blocks in the Middle East. You have Saudi Arabia, and they're kind of at the Sunni allies, and then Iran and its Shia allies. So how does the Sunni-Shia right. split occur? Yeah, that's a very good question. There are still people that don't understand that. Yeah. It is. It's, it's often analogized. Well, let me back up. Um, Islam, just a few metrics for you real quick. The world's largest religion is Christianity with about 2.2 billion. And of course, you know, maybe my Southern Baptist friends aren't happy, but I count the Catholics in that. Um, and some <laughs> yeah. of my, some of my Tridentine Latin speaking Catholic friends might not like including us Protestants in it, but it is. And then of course my Orthodox friends are over here going, Hey, don't forget us. You know, we have the cool beards. Don't forget us. Um, <laughs> but if you lump together all of the, three major branches of Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism, and, and Eastern Orthodoxy, you get about 2.2 billion. Islam is second with about 1.5, 1.6 billion. Um, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, and I, my Muslim friends will do this, and, and you see it a lot. People will try to argue, well, there's not really a sex of Islam. Oh, there are sex. There's sex of every religion in the world. And by the way, for, for the listeners, that are, if I'm not pronouncing that well, that's S-E-C-T-S. I always have to say that for the... Right, right, right. Um, the military guys that I lecture to, it's S-E-C-T-S. Um, but um, that said, of, in Islam, about 85 83%, somewhere in the 80s, uh, are basically under the rubric of Sunni. Uh, and there's another probably 12 15%, depending on how we go, uh, really fine-tune it, uh, that are Shia. That said, however, within Sunni Islam, there are, there, are, there are many differing sects. And within Shia Islam, there are at least three different kinds of Shia. Then we have these right. sort of heterodox sects uh, that it, it's kind of problematic to figure out where to plug them in at all. But where does that come from? It is often analogized to the, the Catholic-Protestant split, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you've heard that, but I've seen it before, and I've even seen it in textbooks. It's just wildly inaccurate. In, in, you know, Protestantism split from Catholicism, of course, when Luther, and I'm a Lutheran, so I'll give a plug in for Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Luther nailed the 95 Theses up on that church door on October 31st of 1517 in Wittenberg, basically saying, I got some problems with some of the stuff in the Catholic Church, and let's talk about it. Of course, that didn't go well, uh, but that's how it started. It basically was a theological disagreement. Luther said, I don't believe that you're saved by works. I believe you're saved only by belief, by belief in, 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 in Jesus. And then that turned really nasty. Sure. Um, in, in Islam, it's, it, the split between Sunni and Shia is almost exactly the opposite. With Luther, it was a theological issue that became political uh, and military, unfortunately. With, in Islam, it's a political issue that becomes theological. The political issue is this. After Muhammad died, who becomes the caliph? 
the Khalifa, the successor to Muhammad, not as prophet, because Muslims believe that prophecy stopped with Muhammad. Right. In fact, this is one of the ways to, well, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways to differentiate mainstream Islam from sects of Islam is, do you believe there's been any more prophecy since Muhammad? If you and, do, you're not mainstream Islam. And Jesus would be one of those prophets as well. Well, yeah, but Jesus was before Muhammad. Right. So, yeah, right. yeah, you're right. 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 But Muhammad is what's called a khatam al-aliyah, the seal of the saints. There is no prophet after Muhammad. Yeah, you're right. The three major prophets in Islam, there are lots of them, but the three major prophets were Moses, Jesus, Muhammad. But there's not any after Muhammad. This is where, for instance, the black Muslim movement in America runs afoul of mainstream Islam, because the foundation of the black Muslim movement in America and back in the 1920s, 1930s, they believed that um, there were certain chaps that were getting other revelation from Muhammad. So, uh, the, excuse me, the, we're getting, other fellows were getting revelation from God, I should say, from Allah. Right. And also so the Baha'is as well, they would be considered. Well, yeah, not, that's a little different, though. That's a Shia thing. Let me get to that. Yeah, okay. yeah that's a good point, though. Uh, but but, but the, the, the issue is who's going to be the caliph? Okay, that's, that's the thing. Okay? The group that became the Sunni said the caliph can be any pious male Muslim. Uh, basically, in the early community, it would have been someone that knew Muhammad personally, sort of the Politburo, the inner circle, if you will. And this is who became the first, because the first caliph was Abu Bakr, and then a guy named uh, Abu, Bakr, um, uh, Abu Bakr, Uthman, Ali. Um, uh, there, there were several caliphs right after Muhammad uh, who were basically political and military commanders. Now, there was a group called the Shi'at Ali, the faction of Ali, where the word Shia comes from, that believed that there should be a dynastic principle operating. That is, that only a male relative or descendant of Muhammad can be the caliph. Now, Muhammad, despite having had, by most accounts, 11 wives over the course of his life, never had any sons that survived past infancy. There's some hints that he may have had one son that died after a few months, but he only had daughters. Now, it's 7th century Arabia. They're not going to put a woman in charge. I mean, they won't put a woman in charge here in 21st century Arabia, but they weren't going to do it in 7th century Arabia. So, the Shi'at Ali wanted Ali to be caliph after Muhammad died. Now, Ali was Muhammad's 30-year younger cousin who also happened to marry Muhammad's daughter, okay. Fatima. Okay. So, and, you know, they, they, they could marry cousins that close back in the old days. <laughs> and and um, so he, the, the Shi'at Ali, the supporters of Ali, the faction of Ali said, well, he should be the caliph. Well, he didn't make the cut. You know, the, the, again, the, 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 the compatriots of Muhammad picked somebody else, and then they picked somebody else again, and they picked somebody else again. Finally, in the year 656 AD, or thereabouts, Ali was chosen as caliph. And this, this sparked a huge civil war, and Ali, after about five years, five very contentious years as caliph, was assassinated. All right? So then the Shi'at Ali said, well, now it should be one of, Muhammad, excuse me, one of Ali's sons, because Ali and his wife, again, who was Muhammad's daughter, had had two sons, Hassan and Hussein. Um, and they said, well, it should be one of these guys, should be caliph. And Hassan basically was paid off to go become a nice, quiet cleric and probably poisoned later on. Uh, Hussein went quietly for a while, and then in the year 680 A.D., led a rebellion, or if you're Shia, led a liberation movement 
that failed, and his followers were all killed. And you know where they were killed, right? At Karbala, mm-hmm. Karbala, Iraq, which is why right. it's such a holy place to Shia. Right. right. So anyway, so, okay. so, and then after that, the Shia basically sort of went underground. Um, and, and, and they're always, they've always been a minority in the Islamic world, although now, of course, they're a majority in Iran, they're a majority in Iraq, uh, they're a majority probably in Lebanon, although there hasn't been a, there hasn't been a census done in Lebanon since 1976. Um, they're in a majority in Bahrain, they're a majority in, now these are 12 or Shia, by the way. Uh, they're Afrikan Shia. They're also a majority in Azerbaijan. The major group of Shia is as I said, the Twelvers. They're called the Twelvers because they believe there were 12 Imams after Muhammad, starting with Ali, going down to Hassan and Hussein and a bunch of other guys. If you want to Google it, you can find a nice chart of these chaps. That uh, there were 12 of these Imams who should have been the leaders of the Islamic community instead of the Sunni caliphs. The Sunni, the Sunni world won in the guise of this group called the Umayyads who came out of Damascus, Syria. And they set up what was called the Umayyad Empire, which lasted from 661 to 750 A.D., in about 750 A.D., they were overthrown by a group that came from uh, eastern Iran, western Afghanistan, called the Abbasids. The Abbasids came back, conquered. Um, and it was interesting how they did it because they sort of appealed to these Shiite ideas, Shiite ideas, and said we are going to we're going to right the wrongs done to the Shiites, although they were actually Sunni. And they got into power, and once they had sort of exploited that idea and got the Shiites to help them, they basically said, you know, <laughs> the hell with you guys. And they built, they're the ones that built Baghdad as their capital. And in many ways, the Abbasids are considered to be sort of the, um, the golden age of Islamic history. They lasted until 1258 when the Mongols came, to, came through and totally destroyed them, along with <laughs> yeah. pretty much everybody else the yeah. Mongols got to. Yeah. So, so the Shia basically have always been a minority. Um, and again, the major group is the Twelver Shia, they believe that there were 12 imams. The 12th one was a young boy named Muhammad. Muhammad, and they call him al-Mahdi, Muhammad al-Mahdi, the rightly guided one, the 12th imam, that he did not die. That in the 9th century A.D., sometime around 874 or 873 A.D., he disappeared. Now, as a historian, I guess also secondarily as a Christian, but primarily as a historian, I think this kid just died. Sure. And this branch of the religion therefore would have died out. But they came up with a sort of elaborate, abstruse, metaphysical explanation that he never died. He went into what was called in Arabic, Heba. Heba is the same word for the, um, um, for the uh, eclipse of the moon. The kid never died. He's, he's in hiding. And um, he is the one that will return at the end of time, as Ahmadinejad always talked about, he is the one that will return at the end of time as the 12th Imam, the Mahdi, who will right all the wrongs and lead the Islamic conquest of the world. Now, let me hasten to add on this real quick, though, however, because this, this is a common misperception a lot of people used to have. It's been sort of, it's sort of dissipated in recent years, I think, because of me and because of other people who are writing about it, who, uh, frankly, don't know that much about it, but still write about it to sell books. The belief in the twelfth, the, the belief in the twelfth Imam is specifically a Shia belief of the twelfth, twelver Shiism branch. Right. There is also there is also a strong belief in what's called the Mahdi, who's the Mahdi, but not the twelfth Imam in the Sunni world. And in fact, I've written about this quite at length, and particularly in that the one book I did came out last fall called Ten Years Captivation of the Mahdi's Camps. Um, there was Pew data from 2012, which was I was just amazed to finally get this because I had sort of 
anecdotally always known this because I would read books in Arabic and such when I wrote my doctoral dissertation on this topic and things. Um, I knew that Sunnis believed in it, but I didn't have any like, you know, empirical data. And finally, uh, Pew polled people on this issue. You can go look at Google Pew 2012 uh, poll data on Muslims. Something like 42% of Muslims um, believe that the Mahdi will return in their li- or will come in their lifetime, and that includes a lot of Shi- a lot of Sunnis. And I always talk about this. Maybe we can turn to this later, but this I think has a lot to do with the fact that groups like ISIS are, frankly, quite legitimately Islamic because ISIS is focused on this on the belief that the Mahdi is going to come, not the Twelver. Not the 12th Imam of the Shia, but the Sunni Mahdi, who basically sort of does the same thing, except whereas the 12th the, the Imam of the, of the Shia will make the world Shia Muslim, the Mahdi of the Sunnis will make the world Sunni Muslim. So, now, this is a different figure from the, what, the, what, the, what the Shia believe is the occulted imam that lives in yeah. a well or something like that. Yeah, the Mahdi, the Mahdi in, yeah. in Sunni Islam has never been occulted. In fact, he's not been here yet. That's the big difference. Right. But I say one of them comes back and one of them comes out. Or excuse me, one of them comes for the first time and one of them comes out or comes back. Yeah, sort of the, grow, sort of the crass um, folk superstition is that uh, he's hiding in a well behind John Quran Mosque. By the way, again, you look at that book, I've got pictures of John Quran Mosque because I actually, believe it or not, I went to Iran in 2008 to a conference, and I oh, got wow. to go to John Quran, which is in the city of Qom. Yeah. But you know what? I, I, I'm really embarrassed because I didn't think to go around back and look in the well, but, but I, did, <laughs> I did go there. But, so, so, like, but, but one of the other points to make is that the 12-er Shia mm-hmm. is, uh, I guess, through the, um, a sect called the Ismailis. They're the ones that eventually oh. end up taking over Iran, I think, in the 1500s. No, those 1500s. are seveners. Oh, Those seveners. are seveners. Those okay. are not twelvers. It's hard they to keep track of all these guys. Yeah, yeah. Can't tell the players without uh, a program, I know. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you said that though, because there are two other major branches of Shia Islam besides the Twelvers. There's the Seveners and the Fivers, and unfortunately seven and five does not add up to twelve in this case. Um, the Sevener is the Seveners are also called the Ismailis because again, you'd have to Google it and find the chart, and I can't really explain it unless you look at the chart. But they basically when they got to the seventh Imam, there was a fight about who was the legitimate seventh Imam of, of Shiism. And, you know, sometimes uh, uh, one of the guys that's one of the Imams would die without kids, and then did it pass through his brother? You know, did it pass through his nearest relative? Or, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes the son would predecease the father. Then you'd have to back up and figure out, you know, who, where, which line does it, where does the line go through? So the, the Seveners are the Ismailis. Now, what's really interesting about them, and I think you were getting to this right, was that they were the assassins of the Middle Ages. Okay. Um, yeah, they were very violent in the Middle Ages, and in fact, they were both, as as you know, we like to say in the uh, in the uh, military analysis world today, they were both state and non-state. Okay, they were non-state actors when they started out. They were basically a terrorist group. This is uh, the, run this is the Hashishim. Yes, the Hashishim, yeah. which yeah. is assassins. Exactly. Right. Now, there's been some. The, yeah, the idea was that they smoked hashish before they went on a, went out on, on their um, their sort of suicide missions. But what's interesting about them is that they primarily were fighting against Sunni leaders. There were a few times when they'd go after, this was after the Crusades, there were a few times when they would go after Christian leaders, but for the most part, they went after Sunni leaders. In fact, one of their major targets was Saladin, you know, the great Saladin, who was the great Kurdish leader who took uh, Jerusalem back from the Crusaders in 1187 AD after the Battle of Hattin. But they tried about four or five times to whack Saladin. They never managed to do it. Um, but they uh, they tried. 
Uh, now, what's really interesting about them is that in the last 500 years, they have become very legitimately peaceful, moderate Muslims. They are headed by that chap called the Aga Khan, um, who's a very rich philanthropist chap, but a lot of people don't realize that he is the, the, the leader of the world's, the largest sect. There's a couple of actually smaller sects of, um, subsects, I should say, of Ismailis. But he's the leader of the largest sect of the Ismailis, and they, they are very interesting. Someone needs to write a doctoral dissertation or book on these guys and, and find out how you go from being a very violent group to a very peaceful group, because they've done it. They define, for instance, jihad today as building desalination plants in Tanzania and mm. building schools as opposed to blowing people up. So there's a lot, I think, that a lot of Sunnis could learn from the Ismailis. I, I but, say that's uh, a good thing, yeah, for sure. That's a very good thing, that's right. <laughs> and there's another, another group, very important, of, uh, uh, of Shia called the Fivers, okay? And again, it goes back, they had the dispute after the fifth imam, we don't need to get into that. But um, they are in Yemen. They're also called the Zaydis. And uh, you, you, as you may know, there's, you know, we haven't seen this in the news much lately, but remember all this stuff in the news late last year, early this year, the Iranians were supporting the Zaydis. And the, the, one of the major tribes that is Zaydi or Fiber Shia in Yemen is called the Houthis, or the, sometimes called the Houthis. Yes. It's actually yes. Houthis. But these people have been in Yemen. I did a very in-depth research paper on them for some folks in the government. Um, the Zaydis have been in Yemen for, oh, since about the 10th century AD. And for, for much of the last millennium, uh, they ruled much of what is now Yemen. Uh, so I, I always try to correct people. It, it, so Iran, this is the case where Iran didn't actually create the problem. Now, Iran's happy to exploit the problem. Um, because it, it, cause it, you know, it's sort of a pain in the keister of the Saudis, and the Iranians will do anything to be a pain to the Saudis. Right. But, but the, the, the Zaydis have a very legitimate, long history in, in that country, and they had very legitimate grievances against government in Yemen because the government, frankly, was not protected. The government, which was Sunni, was allowing not just al-Qaeda, but ISIS into the country. And ISIS and al-Qaeda were going around blowing up these Zaydi Shia mosques, and the people just kind of got tired of it. So they took up arms, and Iran was happy to jump in with funding and weapons. Um, but yeah. it's horrendous but I, what's I, going on over there. By the way, I mean the the, yeah. the Saudis are dropping these cluster bombs, and I mean it's just yeah. and, and and nobody's paying attention to that in the United States at all. Right, and yeah. the Saudis are paranoid because because you know about ten to fifteen percent of the population of Saudi Arabia is Shia. Yeah. Mostly Twelver, but they've also got pockets across the border from Yemen of, of Zaydis. There's also some Ismaili Shia in the city of Najran and some other south-central parts. Uh, and if you remember, some people well, maybe don't remember this. I'm older, though. Um, but in 1979, 1980, after the Islamic Revolution in Iran, there were riots. There have been periodic riots in the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia by the Shia, which are a sizable minority in that area. So so uh, basically, that's that's sort of that proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia going on. But but that does not thereby mean that the that the the Zaydis, uh, the Zaydi Shia don't have any legitimate complaints because they do. Right. So anyway, so that's the major groups of Shia. I mean, there's all kinds of other groups we could get into within the Sunni world. Um, a lot of the problems today in the Sunni world are caused by what we, you know, you could still, when I was in graduate school in the 90s at Ohio State doing my doctorate in Islamic history, we could still use this term called Islamic fundamentalism, and it didn't cause anybody any heartburn. Um, but basically what we have now, you know, the terrorist groups in the world, 
are for the most part, almost all of them, by the way, are Sunni, not Shia. You know, I think it's kind of, it's kind of interesting sometimes because again, you know, I'm, I graduated from college, undergraduate in 1982. Uh, and you know, when I was in college, the, the Islamic revolution happened in Iran, (laughs) excuse me. And Remember 1979, uh, back when they still picked the man of the year by in Time magazine, basically by how important somebody was, not how politically correct they were. Uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, of course, the, the leader of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, was the man of the year. And I, I, you know, a lot of us, I think, still have at least people my age, my generation, still kind of got that settled in their head that that the face of Islamic terrorism or Islamic violence, Islamic fundamentalism was, you know, Iran. But Iran has really been supplanted by the, of course, by bin Laden and al-Baghdadi these days. If you look at the State Department list of uh, foreign transnational terrorist groups, I I looked this up the other day, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 70% of the groups on that list, and the group, the list has about 60 groups on it, uh, are, are Sunni Muslim. Or, no, I take that back. About 70% of the groups are Muslim, and I think all but two are Sunni Muslim. Um, is Iran a big state sponsor of terrorism? Yeah. But, you know, the, not, uh, the, the terrorist groups themselves, for the most part of the world, are Sunni Muslim. And why is that? Well, you know, that's a whole other bone uh, of contention that people will argue about. I don't know if you want to go into that now or not. <laughs> well, I real quick before we move on... Um, mm-hmm. For me and other people that are not as familiar with this subject, the term jihad came up a little bit ago, and I think mm-hmm. there's a struggle with the definition of that. I've heard mm-hmm. it being sort of a uh, like a, a vendetta against non-believers in one case, or as more of a like an internal struggle against your own kind of sins and beliefs. It's both. It's both. Now, the actual the, the Arabic word jihada means to struggle. In the verbal noun form, jihad means struggle. So lex, lexically, I guess that would be, uh, it, that's literally what it means. But if you look at is the Islamic sources, for instance, particularly the hadiths, um, the hadiths are the alleged sayings of Muhammad, and there are multi-volume collections of hadiths, and they are only of slightly less importance than the Quran. The difference between the Hadith and the Quran is that the Quran, of course, is believed by Muslims to be the word of Allah. The Hadith are the word of Muhammad. So they are less important than the Quran, but, but not by much. There, again, as I said, there are multiple collections of the, of the Hadith, both in the Sunni and Shia world. The two major compilers of Hadiths, again, these things of Muhammad, were two guys from the ninth century, one guy named Abu Qari and one guy named uh, Muslim. Yes, he was a Muslim and his name was Muslim. <laughs> uh, but Abu Qari is perhaps the most authoritative compiler of hadiths. And he has something like a hundred references, in the low hundreds, uh, over a hundred some, references to jihad in sayings that Muhammad are said to have uttered. And I say alleged sayings of Muhammad because even Muslims will tell you, the Muslim scholars will tell you that, frankly, they're not sure which ones are legitimate and which ones are not. And, you know, short of a time machine, it's really hard to figure out which ones are. Right. But, <laughs> excuse me, um, but in Bukhari's collection, something like 99 out of 100 or 99 out of 102 or 3 references to jihad, Muhammad mentioning jihad, are ones in which Muhammad the prophet of Islam, the founder of Islam, says to go wage war against non-Muslims. 
Yeah, they're not they're not do a good job brushing your teeth or exercise every morning or you know these build. The, remember a while well a while and I say that only somewhat tongue in cheek because yeah. there there was this movement a while back certain Muslim groups were putting up these billboards. My jihad is to you know I don't know change the oil in my car or something, and that's great except that. It's really misleading because that's not what it's normally meant in history. Normally it's meant going forth on horseback with a sword, maybe not to kill, but to certainly conquer someone that's not Muslim. It's basically to expand what's called the Darul Islam, the world of Islam, at the expense of the Darul Harb, the, Dar- the world of war. It's sort of very Manichaean you know, division of the world. Either you're, I should say, long before George Bush said you're either for us or against us, the early Islamic <laughs> scholars said it. Yeah, you know, so so I mean, Islam from early on was an expansionist, conquering religion. Yeah, it now, starts is that, that the way. only way? Yeah. What's that? It starts that way. Essentially, right. I mean, really is that does. the only way Islam was spread? Well, of course not. Yeah. The, basically, it was also spread what's called dawah. Dawah means, and well, I want to use the term evangelism, but that's not exactly what it is. But basically, it means inviting people to join Islam, and yet, there's a lot of that went on too. Sure, but the the it, it's not. It's not either or, it's both and. Like, again, with the definition of jihad, it's not, it's not one or the other, it's both. It can mean struggle. But, again, if you look at it historically, not just lexically, not just theologically, look at it historically, it is, in most times and most places, meant conquest of non-Muslims. So this is where I will say, for instance, that, you know, like uh, I've argued, you know, <laughs> various venues, I've been on national radio, national TV, and... Uh, is ISIS Islamic? Well, of course they're Islamic. Now, yeah. <laughs> there are only one understanding of Islamic. Right. There are other understandings of Islam and understandings, understandings of Muslim. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. But are they legitimately Islamic? Of course they are. Because jihad is very legitimately Islamic. <laughs> you can go, you can go Google and find pictures of Islamic art from the Ottoman archives and from some of the old Persian archives that show Muhammad leading jihad, that show Muhammad ordering Ali to the head of an opponent. I've, I've never understood how an action can be extremist in a religion if the founder of the religion engaged in it. Yeah. So that, that, that just really doesn't seem logical to me. Now, again, <coughs> I'm sorry. Again, is that all Islam is? No. And I will often say, and I've said this many places, I've written it in articles and books, that I think... Part of the problem in this country is it's become so politicized. You know, the right has said that Islam is always and forever someone with a scimitar trying to sever your head from your body, and that's what Islam is. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. that's clearly historically not accurate. Okay. It, it, it's actually more theologically accurate than it's historically, but it's clearly not historically accurate. But the left on the other side falls off the horse on the other side and says, well, that's just an aberration. And, you know, you know, and the president echoes this ad nauseum and his administration. You know, I love it when John Kerry tells me what Islam is. <laughs> like, I'm sure you know more than John Kerry. Knows I, I, about, he's yeah. always telling us, well, of course, right. I know, but the, it, they're always doing this. I know it's not up to you, John Kerry and Barack Hussein Obama, because I don't believe he's a Muslim. I just believe he's a Christian and never goes to church. Um, <laughs> it's not up to you guys to define Islam. It's up to Muslims to define Islam. And the inescapable fact is that many Muslims, thank God not all, and thank God not even most, but many Muslims agree with many things that ISIS does, and that Al-Qaeda does, and that Boko Haram does, and that the Taliban do. 
Well, well, I mean, for instance, stoning for adultery. Stoning for adultery. Remember last year when ISIS stoned some people for adultery and it was all a shoe and cry? But there's I, I, Pew data again, 2012, 2013. Vast majorities of Muslims in Jordan and in, 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 in Egypt and in Pakistan think that stoning someone for adultery is perfectly acceptable. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a question so that it, I wanted to so ask you. So how's an extremist, right? Yuck. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, this is a question I wanted to ask you, Dr. Furnish, because you, you I, I've, of course, I've heard you, I've heard you uh, several interviews with uh, Derek Gilbert on View from the Bunker, and you've kind of covered this, <laughs> in, in what I'm about to ask, but you, you mentioned the Reformation. And are the, is the Muslim world going through its own version of the Reformation right now? Because definitely no, not you yet. could not look- yet. I don't think they are yet. Okay. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. I'm glad you bring that up. Okay. Well, uh, let's put it this way. You could argue that Islam's had a reformation, but it just made things worse. Because, again, this is where the analogy fails. Like I was saying earlier about the analogy between Protestant and Catholic and Protestant does not work for Sunni Shia. Right. People try to take um, concepts, abstract concepts, or even sometimes historical concepts from the West, which again is largely Christian. The West has been largely Christian since, you know, the 4th century AD, and apply them to the Islamic world. And they don't always work. Uh, Again, the Sunni-Shia analogy to Catholic-Protestant doesn't work. I don't think the Reformation thing works, and I wish people would stop trying to use it, but you're right, everybody does, so we have to deal with it. The Ref- what did the Reformation do? The Reformation basically, again, was a theological argument about how one achieves salvation. And Luther and then the Protestants that came after him, Calvin and others, said that you're saved by faith alone, and the only authority should be the Bible. Okay? You shouldn't rely on the traditions of the Church and other stuff that they said the Catholic Church did, um, and by extension the Orthodox Church, but at the time they were aiming at just the Catholics. <clears throat> now, if you do that in the Islamic world you wind up with the Wahhabis, okay, or what's called the Salafis, okay? If you just go to, the analogy would then, you switch over, say, okay, well, we're just going to go with what the Quran says, okay? We're going to throw out all the Hadiths, the alleged sayings of Muhammad, which actually would be good, because some of them are quite unpalatable and unsavory. I mean, Muhammad says, there are even Hadiths about Muhammad ordering people tortured and nasty things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's they not throw pleasant those out stuff. What's that? It's not pleasant stuff. Right, exactly. Yeah. So throw all that out. Okay, let, let, let's go full, full bore analogy from the Reformation, from Christianity to Reformation Islam. So therefore, you say, sola scriptura, scripture alone, which in the case here is not the Bible, it's only the Quran. Okay? It's only the Quran. And then they're going to throw out 1,400 years of what's called ijma, consensus of the scholars. You know, the four, the four schools of jurisprudence in Islam, you've probably heard of these. Han, in, in, in Sunni world, there's four schools of Islamic jurisprudence. Hanbali, Hanafi, uh, Shafi'i, and what's the other one? No, it's Sunni, not, I can't think of it right now. But there's four of them. Is it the is it Diobandism? No, that's different. That's, a, that's, okay. a, that's, a, that's that sect in Oman. It's a little all different. Right. All right. Um, anyway, so you got these you got these schools of jurisprudence. You throw all those out. You throw out fourteen hundred years of scholars commenting on stuff, and you just go with the Quran. 
Well, see, the, the, this is how you get um, this is how you get the guy, the, the the shooters in San Bernardino, and the Chattanooga shooter at the uh, at the Marine recruiting, yeah. and you get the guy beheading the woman in Oklahoma City because these guys got a Quran and opened it up, you know, to circle on fall verse twelve where it says behead the unbelievers, and they're like. Oh, well, ISIS says in Davic magazine, if I want to be a good Muslim, I need to do exactly what the Quran says. So I will go forth and do that. This is where groups like ISIS, for instance, have the upper hand in terms that it's really hard to delegitimize them because they'll say, we're just doing exactly what the Quran says. And you guys that aren't doing it are the bad Muslims, not us. So. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but, but, but see, if you go, if you just say that's the Reformation, well, that Reformation already happened. They had a group called the Wahhabis, <clears throat> Ibn Abdul Wahhab, who was the founder of, of course, the sect that is now allied with the Saudi, the Saudi family that runs Saudi Arabia. But they first popped up in the late 18th century and said, basically, um, that, that they were a rehash of a movement from the 14th, 13th century followers of a guy called Ibn Taymiyyah that said, we just need to really basically, to make a long story short, we just basically need to do what the Quran says. <laughs> they didn't hedge it about with other, uh, you know, again, these schools of jurisprudence will say, Islam is very much a religion of building on what previous scholars had said. It's, it's very much a corpus of tradition uh, in addition to the Quran. So they basically said, throw all that stuff out, we'll just do what this says. So therefore, you have no breaks on it. There's a lot of passages in the Quran about jihad, about what's called kital, killing, um, uh, you know, uh, subjugating non-Muslims, circle and fall, excuse me, not circle and fall, circle Tauba, which is chapter Tauba, which is the ninth chapter of the Quran, which is believed by scholars to be one of the later ones. Hmm. Um, which is that makes it more authoritative. There's this belief in Islam in a doctrine called Nasq, N-A-S-K-H. <laughs> Boy, I'm too, doing too much Arabic pronunciation of these letters, and that's making my throat sore. I don't do this very often. Anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't speak much Arabic out here in Woodstock. I read it, mm-hmm. but I don't speak it much. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this doctrine called Nasq, N-A-S-K-H, which means supplanting or abrogation. And again, it's a Sunni doctrine. It's been around for a long time. Not something, as I tell people, it's not something that Dick Cheney staff dreamed up or, you know, Trump or somebody. Um, <laughs> and the doctrine of Nasc says that any re- revelations that Muhammad received later in his life are more important, Trump, if you will, the earlier uh, revelations that he received. So this doctrine says that, the re- that, you know, you'll hear people say in Muslims and sometimes apologists for mu- Islam that aren't Muslim. Well, the Quran says that you should be friends with Jews and Christians. Well, yeah, but that was in what that was in the early verses. That is all trumped by Surah Tauba, chapter Tauba, which is chapter nine, verse five, which says, <clears throat> "Attack, besiege, lay in wait for, ambush, kill the unbelievers whenever you encounter them." So that is what ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and the Taliban, <laughs> Ashkari Teba and whatever, these guys all do. So they're like, this is what we're supposed to be doing because this was like the last directive the prophet left for us. And you guys that aren't doing this aren't doing a good job. So if you want to reform that, you can't do it like the way the West did it. That, doesn't, that analogy doesn't work. What you need to do is you have to find a way to interpret the Quran that says the literalism does not prevail. 
because as long as the literalism of the Quran is 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 the canonical definition, you're going to have this problem. This is why people always say, why don't the moderate Muslims speak out against the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda and such? Because they don't have an exegetical leg to stand on. Yeah, because see, the Quran says this. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Is it, it seems to me like if they are going to speak out against this, then they're going to speak out about they're going to speak out against the very thing that's like a driving force in their religion. They're speaking out against a literal understanding yeah. of Islam. Right. And it's problematic. It's very problematic. You know, I tell people the analogy I often use is um, I grew up in Kentucky and I had a friend in high school whose father was a pastor in one of those snake handler churches. Okay. Now, you're, you're in Tennessee. Of course, you're in western Tennessee. Maybe they don't have those there. But, but you know, uh, east eastern Tennessee, Tennessee eastern is, Kentucky. Yeah, I know it, yeah. Northern Kentucky, they, they got those snake handler churches, right? Those people take, I always forget if it's Luke 19.10 or Luke 10.19. I always reverse that. But there's two, there's two gospel passages, I think Matthew and Luke, where Jesus tells the disciples that you know you you will have authority to 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 handle poisonous snakes and things like that and and i you know as a christian i think i see that working out later when saint paul gets shipwrecked and that snake comes out of that fire wood and bites him on the hand and he doesn't die um but my my opinion of that and the opinion of 99.9% of christians is that <clears throat> handling poisonous, if you were standing in front of Jesus when he said that, then go pick up a copperhead by all means. If you weren't standing in front of Jesus when he said that, I'm not doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, but, our drink strict people, nine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right, because it also says drink poison. So, but in the, in the Christian world, we have long, long had a tradition in various churches perhaps not so much the evangelical fundamentalist churches, but certainly in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and, and, and even many Protestant churches, of interpreting the Bible more than one way. Yes, a lot of it should be taken literally, but not all of it has to be taken literally. And that part about picking up poisonous snakes, again, if Jesus appears to me and tells me to pick up a poisonous snake, I'll take it under advisement. But until then, I'm not doing it. So this is a problem. But in Islam... You are not allowed to have that kind of understanding, at least in the Sunni world. In some of the sects, you can. But in mainstream Sunni Islam, the Quran applies literally across space and time. So if it applied in Muhammad's time, you can't therefore say, like for instance, I, 10 years ago, I guess it's 11 years ago now, if you want to Google it, you're really bored, look it up, Beheading in the Name of Islam. It's the article I wrote for Middle East Quarterly. It's one of like the few academic papers or uh, publications ever done on Islamic beheading. I don't know why. You'd think it'd be a really interesting topic, wouldn't you? But, you know, I was one of the people that was dumb enough to do this. Um, but in, in beheading passages, in Islam, you're not allowed to say, and as we know, ISIS beheads, Al-Qaeda used to behead some, but, you know, ISIS is a big fan of this. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't refute them by saying, well, uh, that only apply, applied in the prophet's time. The prophet could do it, but not you. Because, yeah, as you correctly observed a moment ago, then you're in hot water because you're saying, wait a minute, you're saying something the prophet of Islam said does not apply now? You can't say that it's rhetorical. Well, you know, the prophet meant to rhetorically behead your opponents when you dispute with them about the truths of your religion or something. You can't say any of that stuff. You can say that sort of thing in Christianity. You know, it's, it, it's not literal, or we don't have to take that literally, or we, we can take that uh, 
um, allegorically or symbolically or any of these other. I think the medieval Catholic Church had about 17 different ways of understanding every, any particular passage of Scripture. Um, but in Islam, you don't have that. In Sunni Islam, again, you have it in some of the sects. But in Sunni Islam, you are stuck with taking it literally. And this is why, again, most of the world's Muslims that don't like what ISIS is doing and don't agree with it really can't speak up because you can't theologically refute them because they have the upper ground. And again, to get back to this idea of reformation, what's really needed in Islam, I don't know if reformation is the right word, but they really need it. Islam needs to develop an understanding where you can be Muslim and say that I don't take everything in there literally. Yeah. But but that doesn't exist yet. I mean, I know there are some Western Muslims trying to do that. I don't know if you saw that. <clears throat> I was on that Fox special back in March on uh, under, uh, War Stories episode, Fighting ISIS. And at the end of that show, they had on two people that I respect a great deal, Dr. Sudi Jasser and Asra Nomani, both of whom are Western Muslims and very educated and urbane and very reasonable people. Um, and they're leading this movement to say, you know, uh, basically that, any Muslim can interpret the Quran for themselves. But the problem is that there's only about 12 people in the world that share that view, including those two, because <laughs> that has never been an understanding of Islam. You're not allowed to interpret the Quran for yourself. You only, you only can interpret it through the lens of what the imam tells you and what, what they say. What, 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 what the previous scholars have said for 1,400 uh. years. You're not, you're not supposed to pick up the Quran and decide for yourself what it means. Now, until that changes in, in Islam, we're going to continue to have this problem. Well, it, let me ask you this. Is there more leeway in Shia Islam with this yeah, stuff? Actually that's, yeah, actually, I think there is. And, I, and I've said before, and I wrote, this, I wrote this in, I think, both of my Islam books the last six months that I've gotten out, that I think that if there is, again, reformation or change or whatever we want to call it, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, in Islam, I think it will probably come from the Shia world, and probably from the Twelver Shia. Because despite the fact that, it, you know, Iran is clearly, the Iranian government is clearly our enemy, and a lot of what Iran do, does is very problematic, as, you know, we all know, it's, it is probably the world's foremost sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism. Twelver sure. Shiism itself, <laughs> excuse me, allows for non-literal interpretation of Islamic texts, what's called tahwil instead of what's called, what the Sunnis are stuck with, which is called taklid, which basically literally means slavish imitation. Okay, you can only do what previous scholars had said. You have to go with that. But in Twelver Shia Islam, you know, if, if they ever manage to get rid of the ayatollahocracy running the country, um, then, then maybe, you know, Twelver Shiism could be a force for change in the Islamic world, positive change. And by the way, you know, there, there are a number of ayatollahs in Iran and in Iraq, because remember, in the Iraqis, although Arabs, not Persians, most of the Iraqis are the same religion, Twelver Shiism. And they're some of the most senior clerics in the Twelver Shia world are Iraqi, not Iranian. But there are Iraqi and Iranian uh, ayatollahs that don't agree with what's called the viliyat de fiqi, the, uh, the the rule of the clerics in is in Iran that that, Ayatol, that Ayatollah Khomeini had put in place. In fact, there are some some of the senior clerics in Iran are under house arrest because they they don't agree with it. So it is. It, but anyway, my point with that is that not all not all of the leadership of twelve or Shiism agrees with the with the with the Islamic State of Iran on this on, in politics. Right. And it seems to me like Iran itself 
just as an observation. I mean, they call themselves the Islamic Republic, but they seem to be, in comparison to even Saudi Arabia, a much more progressive state. Uh, and when you compare them with the Taliban or with ISIS, I mean, they're not doing half the things that that those groups are doing in this very strict application of Sharia law. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, yeah. I, I you know, if if you were going to say we're going, you have two choices: we're going to drop you in Raqqa and we're going to drop you in Tehran. I'll take Tehran. You <laughs> know, day. of course, I'd probably wind up in jail because you know I've been there, and you know, I always tell people. You know, God love the Arabs, but I don't really find their intelligence services too intimidating. But the Iranians scare me because really? they're they're very they're Persian. They're you know they've been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah, they're, they're different people. A lot of people don't realize <laughs> that in the United States, it's like everybody tends to lump all these guys together as right. Arabs. Right. I, I have a question for you, and this is something that I I've really been chopping at the bit to ask you, and. We hear about Sharia law, and as a matter of fact, here in Nashville a few years ago, we had the anti-Sharia law conference that took place at a uh, a church here in Nashville, mm-hmm. and we hear this all the time about there's this there's this fear that we're going to have the imposition of Sharia law in the United States, mm-hmm. and you have a very real fear of that, I think, in Europe. Is there any justification to worry about that here? I think we should be concerned about it. I mean, demographic, there have been a number of studies that show that once the Muslim population in an area reaches a certain percentage, then the demands become sort of incessant. Okay. I think we're starting to see that. Didn't you guys have the big flap? Whatever happened with that big flap in Murfreesboro a few years ago? Yeah, that was the Murfreesboro Mosque. Um, mm-hmm. They had a mosque that was opening or trying to open up, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of people from the anti-Sharia law uh, movement that came mm-hmm. here, and that's mm-hmm. why they actually had the uh, conference here in Nashville. That was around the same time, incidentally. Did, did the mosque finally open? I'm not sure. I know that the, my understanding, I, I think I think, mm-hmm. that, I think that it did finally, but there was a ton of of controversy about it. Yeah, I remember that. But my understanding, what I remember about it was that it was like there were maybe a few hundred Muslims community, and they wanted to build an enormous mosque, like sort of all out of proportion to how many Muslims they had. Um, look, there's again, this is there's a lot of heat and light on both sides, and 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 you have to kind of navigate uh-huh. it carefully. <clears throat> It is clear that Muslims have every right to build mosques and worship in this country. Okay, I don't have a problem with that, uh, and I don't think we should. But we also have to be aware that opposition to some of what some of the Muslim groups say has merit also. And I'll give you an example. It, it is not necessary in any wise for a Muslim group to have any aspect of Sharia law in, in order to worship in this country. Okay. That would be like saying that Catholics can't have mass on Sunday unless canon law is imposed or unless they're allowed to um, have canon law in their communities. Well, no, we've never had canon law in any communities in this country. And last time I checked, there were about 70 million Catholics, and they're doing a lot of masses on Sunday. So it's sort of analogous to that. There are Muslims, there are a lot of Muslims, I think, are perfectly happy to just have a mosque so they can go worship. There are others, however, and other groups, 
CARE comes to mind, the Council on American Islamic Relations, that I think has a, frankly, more, not just ulterior motive, but sinister agenda. I mean, they want America to be more Islamic. And they are these, and, and, and people and groups of this persuasion will argue that, well, we can't really practice Islam without Sharia law. And you can see there have been instances, I think they've been beaten back so far, but it wasn't just in New Jersey a few years ago, where somebody wanted, there was a Muslim group or community that wanted Sharia law to apply in family matters. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean four wives? Because according to Islamic law, you're <laughs> yeah. allowed to have four wives. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you right now, it's only a matter of time before that argument starts being made. I mean, we've already got gay marriage in this country, uh, and we're going to have Muslim groups, and we're going to have some of the old school Mormon groups arguing that they should be allowed. In fact, some of them already are. Yeah, it's already happened. That they should be yeah. yeah, they should be allowed to practice polygamy. <clears throat> You know, and, you know, that's a whole other kettle of fish, but, but in this specific case, we're talking about Sharia law, that's part of Sharia law. Polygamy is part of Sharia law. Um, and, and, you know, it, part of also Sharia law in many countries is, you know, young girls should be allowed to marry. Girls that, you know, you would go to jail for in this country right mm -hmm. now under current law yep. for trying to marry. Okay. <laughs> but again, where does this come from? This doesn't come in a vacuum. It's not just cultural. Part of it's cultural. But part of it is the fact that one of Muhammad's wives, who was Aisha, according to the Islamic sources, was six when Muhammad married her and nine when he consummated the marriage. Wow. Now, Muslims will, there, I know some Muslims will go ballistic about this, but this is simply what the Islamic sources say. Again, not Trump, not Dick Cheney. Um, but, 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 uh, so... I think both sides have a point on this, okay? And, and sometimes some of the strident opposition makes people look sort of like, you know, frankly, jackasses on this issue. But yeah. even jackasses sometimes have points. And it is, it is the case that I think people need to be concerned about certain groups trying to agitate for. And unfortunately, now it's often through victimization, you know, the claims of discrimination, which are sometimes true, but sometimes are not true at all. They're being used as leverage in order to say, well, we need more fill in the blank. And, 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 and yeah. there are many unsavory aspects of Sharia law. I mean, you said earlier about Iran being more progressive. In some ways it is. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of women in the Iranian parliament and the Iranian modulus. Women can drive cars. Women can do things in Iran. They can't do in Saudi Arabia. Right, right. But they also, but, Iran also has the death penalty for homosexuality, just like Saudi Arabia does. Yeah. In fact, there are seven countries on the face of the earth that have the death penalty for homosexuality, and, one of, and none of them is North Carolina, I tell people. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get back into that again. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, I mean, progressive, yeah, okay, well, it depends on... <laughs> Not to be Clintonian, it depends on what your definition of progressive is. But, but I do think that people have to be concerned because, look, in America, partly because I think American, most Americans are just pretty much kind of nice, fair-minded people, and partly because of the horrible job public schools have done for so many years, hmm. and frankly, partly because of the horrible job that a lot of the mainstream liberal churches have done in this country, teaching people that there's no difference between Islam and Christianity. Now, grant you, there's no difference between Islam and Christianity, I would say, in terms of political rights, as long as you're willing to respect the Constitution, okay? Sure. But... Uh, 
I mean, there there's a big difference between Islam and Christianity. There's lots of big differences between Christ, Islam and Christianity. But if you want to keep it just with the public sphere here, as you said with the Sharia thing, um, again, imagine a bunch of Catholics coming in here from Poland and saying we're building a giant cathedral. You know, we've got we've got a hundred members, but we're going to build a twenty thousand square foot cathedral in your town. And by the way, we think that canon law should apply to our kids. Um, and they should be able to get the you know canonical hours off from school to go to prayers. And by the way, we also think that their classes should be in Latin or Polish. Pick one. Um, you know, I mean that sort of thing. I mean, you put it like that, people go, no, you need to you need to adjust to us. We don't have to adjust that far to you. And I think that's where we're at. I have no problems with people Muslims coming in here and building mosques. That's fine, but don't come in here. If you're going to come in here and build a great big mosque, like a, a brand new mosque just opened up probably about 10 miles from my house over here in Alpharetta, Georgia. Um, it right big mosque. It, I, like, for instance, if the community wants to know where's the funding coming from for this big mosque when you've got 60 families, I don't think it's unreasonable to tell them. Yeah. And it would That's be helpful point. if the if the federal government didn't automatically assume that any opposition to a mosque is you know religious or God forbid racial discrimination, which is one of the stupider things going on in the modern world. Islam is not a race; it's a religion. Hmm. But yet, you know, but 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 the left has decided that, it, and, and many Muslims, not all, but many Muslims have jumped on this bandwagon of using it as you know. Oh, we can claim racial discrimination. What's well, not a race? Yeah, it's I mean, the last like the, time I kind of like the whole clock boy thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was in South Africa in March giving a talk at a university about Islam, and I sure saw a whole lot of quite dark people who are Christian. Now, does that mean Christianity is a race? I'm pretty yeah. sure most people don't make that argument, but yet they want to make that argument with Islam. It's absurd. You know, I mean, it's, even, it's Mal- even, it's, even Malcolm X said, you know, one thing that he liked yeah. about Islam was that there were other yeah. people that were that were whiter than white that he could he right. could you know, commune with. Yeah, right. He saw the Albanians. Right, they're like <laughs> translucent. Right, or the Caucasian the people in uh, like uh, uh, Chechnya. That that, that right, place. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, or Turks. I mean, I got uh, Turkish friends that are whiter than me. Oh wow. Um, but but you know, but the point again is, I think that. I think that that's something we have to be aware of. And again, it's gotten to the point where, you know, it was claimed after 9-11 there was all this discrimination against Muslims. And again, as that data I adduced earlier when we first started talking, I think that data pretty much gives a lie to that. If, if we were so discriminatory toward Muslims in the United States, why would there be so many more mosques than Muslims than there were? After, before 9-11. I, don't, I think Americans bend over backwards to be welcoming and forthcoming. Yeah, you have some jack wagons here and there, you know, these guys that don't know a Sikh from a Muslim and go right spray paint graffiti on a mosque or something. But, yeah, you know, or shoot up the I mean, mosque. Look, right, well, yeah, yeah, but, you know, look, I mean, how many Muslims have been killed in America since 9-11? I, I don't yeah. know of any. So, so th- this is, you know, but a care will tell you this. I was, I, I was on... Uh, Alhura TV back in December, January. Alhura TV is the um, is the U.S. funded Iraqi TV station. It means Freedom TV. It's supposed to be like you know getting our word out to counter Al Jazeera in the Middle East. <laughs> so I was on with three Muslims and then me, and two of the Muslim guys were from Care. 
And these guys kept going on and on about all this, how horrible it is for Muslims in the United States, and there's discrimination right and left, and you would think mosques are burning on a nightly basis, listen to these guys. And, and, this, and this, this one care guy said that um, uh, just last week, uh, he said this in December, just last week a Somali Muslim was thrown to his death from a window. I'm like, what? I looked it up. I, I'm sitting here, you know, you know, doing it from TV and S- Skype, and I'm like looking it up on. And, and it was, it was like some Somali kid got drunk at a party at some in Washington State and fell off a balcony. Wow. Yeah. Oh, see, they, was, see, they was, spin it. He was to thrown the to his death. Viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah, they said like, it. No, I, I just flat out said that. That's just, frankly, I think that's a lie. I don't believe that for one second. Yeah. So, but, but, but the thing that was most disturbing about that, again, was that this was Alhura TV, which the United States spends about $100 million on per year. And we're broadcasting in Iraq about how horrible things are for Muslims in the United States. I'm like, can, can we be any stupider? Hmm. Well, I want to ask you, uh, you know, I think we're running out of time here. Uh, I know you got to you got to get going, but uh, turning from Islam and that whole world, and I and I was really wanted to ask you about Sufism, but I really think uh-huh. we could do another show just devoted to Sufism. <laughs> okay, and I think we should do yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's a huge topic. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about, and we can get Robin here a, a little bit because you are a big Tolkien fan, and you are actually writing. Well, you've already written one book about Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And the Middle Earth universe, and you're writing currently another one, right? Yeah, I do the Middle East and Middle Earth. I tell people, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I need a break sometimes from all this beheading and you know counterterrorism and stuff. So, yeah, I've been a big Tolkien fan since high school, and um, I you know I reread the books every few years, and I'm one of these geeks that reads not just Lord of the Rings, but I've read the Silmarillion, and I've read like. Oh, I've got all Tolkien's books here, all the scraps of stuff, like the 12 volumes of stuff that his son, Christopher Tolkien, per- published after he died and all that stuff. You know, you know, I, I read the appendices. That's, that's, that's how geeky I am. Right. Yeah, I'm right there um, with you. Yeah, what happened was about four or five years ago, um, I taught a few courses for American Military University online about military history, which I'd never taught Um but I had never actually done military history as a discipline. So I had to read a bunch of stuff on military history, sort of get up to speed and, you know, books on strategy and tactics and stuff. And some of the books you can talk about in ancient warfare, actually really up until the advent of the um, gunpowder weapons and what, you know, starting around 1000 AD, 1100 AD, there were only four modes of warfare pretty much on land, you know, heavy infantry, there's infantry and cavalry, and there's heavy infantry, light infantry, heavy cavalry, light cavalry, or combinations thereof. You know, I mean, that's how it was done. And I got to thinking, and of course, you know, I've seen all the Lord of the Rings movies multiple times, extended editions and all that stuff. And my kids and I played Lord of the Rings Risk. We love the game. <laughs> and I got to thinking, a military history of Middle Earth, you know, analyzing not just the battles and the movies, which are all, of course, late third age, but if, you know, if you're, you know, Tolkien had the second age and the first age, um, and, and I went through and identified like 24 major battles from the first through the fourth age over like 7,000 years of history. I'm going to, I'm going to analyze these things like, like the real world battles, you know, yeah. and do line and block charts and, you know, the little, the little, uh, arrows with the forces and different colors and who did <laughs> this and who. 
So I'm going to do that. So, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. So, so a friend of mine who lived down here did a lot of Tolkien calendars, Jeff Murray. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Abruptly of a heart attack, same age as me, 55. Uh. We're all so mortal. But Jeff and I talked, and he knew this publisher up in Toronto called Oloris Publishing and just started. They do a lot of fantasy um, and, and such. So uh, I got in contact with them. They're like, this is great. So I started writing it. And then I, then I realized, well, I, to write the stuff about battles, I got to write about who are the political actors and the kingdoms and the different races, right? Men and elves and dwarves and orcs and goblins and hobbits and, and, uh, walking trees, the ends, not so much about them, but mostly those. <laughs> so I started running the background stuff about, cause you know, you can't, you can't lay out the battles till you tell who the antagonists are. And that part got so long that finally, like last fall, I guess it was last summer, my publisher said, just break that out as a separate book. So that's, what's been published. The poli- a political history of middle earth. Uh, it's very geeky. Uh, you know, I look at all the, from, you know, over 7,000 years of history, according to Tolkien. I look at the different kinds of kingdoms. They weren't all monarchies, by the way. Um, and then I also do some sort of like, um, um, I do like this analysis of like, you know, in each age of Middle Earth, is it, is it, is it multipolar? Well, what's the, what's the internet, the IR, you know, the international relations configuration, multipolar, unipolar, bipolar, Gondor versus Mordor, and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, and, and then I analyze, like, each race, elves, men, orcs, dwarves, like, physically and culturally, and then how that would affect their war fighting and things like that. So, yeah, it's supremely geeky, um, and I have to say the book's a little overpriced, in my opinion, but I didn't set the price. It does, however, have very wonderful, I have a wonderful um, artist, uh, Aki Iceberg, who is a, um, Eisenberg, who's a, um, Norwegian. She did wonderful, wonderful stuff for me. And then I got a Aaron Sadal, who's the artist, who's the, excuse me, the map guy. He lives in, I think he lives in New York and he did some wonderful maps for me. So it's really got wonderful illustrations and stuff. And well, believe this it or not, like a again, coffee table book, huh? Kind of like, well, that. Yeah, yeah. Except, yeah, except I don't want people just to look at it. I want to read it. I've yeah. got, believe it or not, I've got a bibliography of 231 works cited. So it's totally wow. easy. So, and, and again, anybody listening, it's a good book. You can get it at Amazon. It's called High Towers and Strong Places, A Political History of Middle Earth. Amazon's got it. Barnes & Noble's got it. Books and Millions got it. But it's on sale at the publisher, Oloris Publishing, O-L-O-R-I-S. Uh, and you can get ebook or Kindle. So uh, it's a fun book. Um, but it's really, I, you know, I... The second one, I think, is going to be better because the the second one that I'm working on now is, you know, the one with all the battles and stuff. So, oh, yeah, but the first that's one good stuff. pretty cool, too. Uh, are you a Game of Thrones fan, Dr. Furnish? You know, I tried. I watched it the first season. <laughs> and, you know, and then he killed Sean Bean again. And I'm tired of seeing Sean Bean die. So. <laughs> I'm like, I went through this with Boromir. It's personal, okay? Yeah, now you're doing yeah, it again, yeah, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what? I saw a description. I don't know if that, and I, so that's all I've watched of it, really. But I saw a description. I thought it was just wonderful. See if this fits. Somebody I read said that that the Game of Thrones was Lord of the Rings if Hugh Hefner had done it. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really <laughs> is. I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's dragons and women's breasts. I mean, that's basically it. <laughs> that's what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, they didn't do they didn't do full frontal in Lord of the Rings very much. Thank God. No, they didn't. Robert, you a big Tolkien so. fan? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, it, it's been a while since I've read through them all, but um, I was I, actually I wanted to ask you real quick. Did you um, 
Did you talk about the discrepancies in the movies? You mentioned that you watched them a lot and you enjoyed them. Yes, yes, I do. That's um, you know you have to be careful. I don't want to you don't want to make certain people mad. But yeah, I do talk about that, and I'm going to talk about that. In fact, I'm trying to decide whether to have an entirely separate chapter on that <laughs> in the second book. But I have several of those I point out. Like for instance, just a small thing is that Tolkien points out in one of his books that not only did dwarves never never ride a horse or a pony. The dwarves were the only race in Middle-earth that, did, that domesticated no animals, hmm. which I talk about later, which may have had something to do with the fact that they eventually die out, because how do you have a civilization or culture that has no domesticated animals, okay? Um, uh-huh. but, but, you know, so, but there we have in those Hobbit movies, you know, you got the, the dwarves all happily riding horses, and in fact, in Lord of the Rings, Gimli was on one. I mean, and it's just... I mean, I sort of see why some of the stuff that, that, that Jackson did, you have to do. And, and I love the movies. You know, some of the stuff you have to change. Uh, but some of the stuff just seems sort of gratuitous. And, and he, it's like some of the stuff they, they hewed so closely to what Tolkien said, and some of it they just tossed it out the window. Um, like, and again, one of my major points is, and I point this out on the first page of Chapter 3 in the, in the Tolkien book that I just published, if you remember the scene in the, uh, I guess it was the first Hobbit movie where the White Council meets, and it's it's Gandalf and Saruman and Galadriel and Elrond, and they meet, and and then Gandalf has that little love fest talk with Galadriel uh, about. She goes, "Why the halfling?" And he's like, "Well, because he gives me hope." Saruman, Saruman believes it's only great power that can hold back evil, but I find that's not the case. And I'm going like. Oh, that's balderdash. Because if you read Tolkien, it's clearly the only thing that holds back evil is great power. Now, mm. do they finally manage to defeat Sauron by melting the ring? Yeah. But that only happened because you had a whole lot of dudes and, you know, dwarves and elves, but mostly men, out with weapons, fighting people. Otherwise, all would have been lost. So I know PJ has to sort of make this, like, you know, hobbit-centric sort of drivel in there, but it's kind of annoyed me. So could you tell it kind of annoyed me? Yeah, just a little bit, but, or, but, you know, but, but for instance, like in, is it, um, at the battle of Helm's deep in the Lord of the Rings movie, remember Gandalf shows up with Amor and they ride down that slope. What is that? Like about 120 degree slope. Yeah. I mean, nobody can ride down a slope like that. Your horses would all be falling and they'd all be dead. I mean, <laughs> Uh, why did you do that? Well, you know, and the elves so, show up to save the day there, which I don't believe. Oh yeah, well that's a whole plot change. You're right. Yeah, why, that, that, why that was just horrible. That? Yeah, yeah, we did not need that. Um, uh, you know, I'm, but again, some of the stuff you have to change. Like you know, in, Lord, in, in Fellowship of the Ring, Aragorn's when he's still just known as Strider is wandering around the wild with a broken sword, right? Because at one point he throws it out on the table and shows the hobbits. I'm like, wait a minute. You, you, you're, you're the mighty ranger dude, but you're going around slaying orcs with a, the, the hilt of a sword. Um, probably didn't work very well. You know, that worked in the book, but you couldn't have that in the movie. I could see where, you know, they had the, they, you know, they had the broken sword in the little shrine thing at Rivendell, and Aragorn had a real sword. It makes much more sense. But, but some of the stuff, it's like, I don't know, why'd you have to put the dwarves riding horses? Couldn't they have just walked like they did in the books? So. Hmm. And of course, in the you know the Hobbit movies are far inferior, just because partly just because it was so much CGI. It was also this. It was also the Hobbit is like what a three hundred page right. book, and they stretched it out over three hundred. Yeah. I'm refusing yeah. to watch the last one. I'm actually bored. Well, I watched it. it. I, I got to huh. say, the extended edition of that was pretty good. My boys and I watched it several times. Uh, but you know, they did pull. Uh, 
Jackson only had legal recourse to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He couldn't use The Silmarillion or Unfinished Tales or any of this other stuff. There's a whole lot in the volume Unfinished Tales about yeah. about The Hobbit and stuff like that. I want to ask but you. There's uh, a lot. There, there's a lot in the appendices to Lord of the Rings that he could have used. Oh yeah. And some of that stuff that he just they just like made it up about about that whole scene where um where where, where Gandalf and Radagast go to those tombs tombs and root hour of the Nazgul or something. There's nothing in Tolkien about the Nazgul ever uh, being put in tombs. They were already dead. I was wondering about that whole dead. sequence, whether that was in the the appendices or where that even came from. No, that was made uh, up. I mean, Fran made that up or something. I don't know. Um, uh, so, you know, but again, on the other hand, I thank God for Peter Jackson that he did these, you know, because I, I, I do still love them. And in fact, my boys and I were just talking, okay, when they get out of school here in a couple of weeks, we got to have another extended edition Lord of the Rings weekend party, which my <laughs> wife will probably have to leave. <laughs> that'll be like, that'll be like an entire day thing. Well, let me ask you real quick, uh, Dr. Furnish, mm-hmm. I know you got to go, but, uh, you know, a lot of people like to say that, uh, that Tolkien put a lot of Christian themes in his movies, and you, you hear that from time to time. Now, now C.S. Lewis, definitely. I mean, he was definitely a Christian author. He definitely put a lot of Christianity uh, themes into his into his works. But is there any of that in Tolkien? Would it have been done consciously? Yeah, oh, I think it's clearly conscious. But, you know, it's not overt. And that's one yeah. reason I like Tolkien. You know, I agree with Tolkien. You know, I've read every theological work C.S. Lewis has ever written, and uh, the man's wonderful, I detest his fiction. Hmm. It's like he's hammering you, hammering you over the head with the allegory. Okay? I just prefer Tolkien, who tells a story. Now, yeah. you have motifs that are clearly Christian without being overtly so. You know, I mean, Frodo's a suffering servant. The dude suffers to get the ring there. Okay? You know, Aragorn is kind of Christ-like because he's the king that renews the land once he becomes king, you know? Right, right. Um, but it's all sort of sub-Rosa, and it's not a right out there. I mean, the overall thrust of Lord of the Rings is don't give up, you know? I mean, remember, and one of the things they actually took directly from the book that was one of the most wonderful parts that Jackson did was, you know, that little speech that Gandalf gives Frodo when they're in the mines of Moria, you know? There, there, are, other, there are other forces in evil than evil at work in this world, Frodo, you know, which is why you found the ring, you know, and, you know, and should be hopeful about that. So it's, it's more sort of, because clearly, I mean, Tolkien's writing, his world is supposed to be a pre-Christian world. I mean, he talks about in letters, and I talk about this because I deal quite a bit with the issue of dating. Tolkien basically is setting, this is supposed to be taking place in the ancient world. In fact, he says it's approximately 4,000 BC, more hmm. or less. Hmm. Um, but, and you see, for instance, if you, you don't really get this so much out of Lord of the Rings, you have to read the other stuff. But like, for instance, you know, the people that founded Gondor, Gondor was founded by the, the Numenor. Numenor was the great second age human kingdom that was like Atlantis, right? Uh, and they were, he says that they were monotheists. The Numenorians were monotheists. They worshiped the one God. Okay. But it's clearly long pre-Christian. They don't have direct revelation from the run, one God. They know of him. They worship him. But they don't know much about him. So um, he has – it's much more subtle with Tolkien, and that's one thing that I like about it. You know, and mostly he's just telling a good story. Yeah, uh, uh, Tolkien is, uh, was amazing of just how he, he, does, he made this entire world, and he came up with this history for it. I mean, what, what an amazing achievement – for one guy to do with all this. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, it just it just I mean he created the entire world. And you know, again, copious volumes about it, which is one right. reason like for instance, you know, from what one reason I'm talking about, like I started out talking this the second volume that I'm writing about, I compare this to the world of Star Wars and then the world of Dune. I don't know if you ever read the Dune books. I've oh, read yeah. the first yeah. one. Love yeah. the Dune books. Uh, I read I read not only the six that Frank Herbert wrote, but the prequels and sequels that his son wrote along with some other guy. None of which are nearly as good, but it's just you know I love that universe. But I talk about Star Wars vis-a-vis Lord of the Rings. I'm like, there's not even any comparison. I mean, there's no Star Wars is a fun story, but you know the universe it's not really that coherent. And uh, you know part of it again you can't really blame Lucas. I guess it's just something he made up, and then. People have tried to create backstory for it over the years, but really there's not backstory for it. Whereas Tolkien, as you said, you know, Tolkien spent decades of his life creating this world and creating the languages for it. Um, and it just does, it's so grounded and so believable that, again, as I say in this volume I published and the other one I'm working on, you can analyze it as real history because it's so grounded. Yeah. Yeah, you really can. I read The Similarian when I was like, 12, 13 years old and just being amazed by just like the, the deep, just the sheer detail that he put into it. And you could definitely yeah. see where he pulls a lot. I mean, he pulls a lot of ideas from the Bible. He pulls a lot from Anglo-Saxon mythology oh, yeah. or yeah, Norse yeah. Celtic, mythology. Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, yeah. Norse. Yeah. I mean, he was an yeah, Anglo-Saxon I mean, like, scholar, as I believe. Yeah. Yes, yes, he was. He was a professor of Anglo-Saxon. That's right. But he knew like 13 languages. He could read like 13 wow. languages. And Elvish is... I think Sindarin or Quenya, I think it's Quenya, is modeled on Finnish, oh, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, but, 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 you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, in Tolkien, you've got one god called Eru, and then you've got a Satan figure called Melkor, Morgoth or Melkor, um, and then Sauron is his, like, right-hand man. Uh, and then the whole thing is, you know, in the early part is like the elves are fighting against this. Mor- they're basically fighting Satan on Earth. Satan comes to Earth and sets up a kingdom, and the elves have to fight him. Yeah. And then he's eventually defeated, and then and then his you know his his second in command Sauron is the one that's the problem in the second and third age that then mainly men have to fight. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean it's fascinating stuff, and, and you're right. I think it's so resonant in many ways because it's it's sort of like a it's sort of like telling the Christian view of history in a different way. Uh, and, and, but again, without hitting you over the head with allegory, which CSOs unfortunately fall like into. to do. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Furnish, uh, real quick before we end this in the interview, mm-hmm. what are the books that you have out and where can people get them? And also okay. your website, if people would like to contact you. Thank you. Uh, you know, my website, if people want to contact me, it's called Matthew watch, A-H-D-I watch.org. And you can go there. If anybody wants to contact me, there's a contact me place. You can email me. Um, uh, yeah, I've got three books out in the last six months, two on Islam, the one uh, last fall, 10 years captivation with the Matthews camps, which is about mainly Islamic eschatology. Uh, Sex, Lies, in the Caliphate, S-E-C-T-S, which came out back in January. And then the Tolkien book, High Towers and Strong Places. And if you just go to Amazon and look me up on Amazon, i got an author page, and they'll all come up uh, there on Amazon. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's been very informative, and like I said, I think we're going to have to do another show about Sufism. And uh, be glad to. It's one of the things I study. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and uh, stay on the line for us, Rob. Anything you wanted to add? No, we're good. Okay, all right. Stay on the line for us, Doctor Furnish, and we'll be right all back, right. guys, on Conspiracy Normal.
joining us. First at four in a Fox Carolina investigation. Can a business owner refuse you service because of your political views? That's a question we wanted to get an answer to after a traveler's rest woman says a towing company did just that. The woman who contacted Fox Carolina is a Bernie Sanders supporter. The businessman involved is a Trump supporter. And Fox Carolina's Adrian Acosta got right in the middle of the two to find out what in the world happened. Adrian's live for us along the interstate. So Adrian, you also talked to an attorney about this unique case and what did he have to say? Well, Dan and Cody, the attorney I talked to said what happened on the side of the interstate was unlike anything he's ever heard of before. But he said, considering the strong feelings this political season from both parties, it won't be the last time we hear of it. Ken Shoup runs Shoopy Max Towing and Traveler's Rest. And on Monday, he made a business decision that's caused a lot of controversy. I drive to Asheville, North Carolina. The lady had obviously had a, a little fender bender. Shoup said he was about to load the woman's car, seen in these pictures, but stopped. And I noticed all the Bernie Sanders, you know, the uh, the big cardboard Bernie Sanders sign in her back window. For Shoup, a Trump supporter, that was a deal breaker. Every business dealing in recent history that I've had with a socialist-minded person, I haven't got paid. I own the truck. The side of my truck says Shoopy. It doesn't say freebie. You know, and every time I've dealt with these people in recent history, I get burned with an E, not a U. Cassie McWade is the Sanders supporter that Shoop refused to tow. I personally believe Mr. Shoopy wouldn't want someone to do this to him. Or his daughter. Or his daughter. Kelly McWade says what Shoop did was especially hurtful because Cassie, her daughter, is disabled. Trump's motto is make America great again. This kind of divisive behavior and hatefulness is not what's going to make America great again. If you're discriminating against somebody based on whatever their affiliation is, then that is bigotry. We may not like it, we may not agree with it, but I don't believe that any laws of South Carolina were broken. Greenville attorney Steve Sumner said unlike race, religion, and sexuality, political affiliation is not a protected status. As long as there's no contract present, uh, between the driver and, in this case, the tow truck company, then there would be no legal obligation for the tow truck company to pick her up. Subner says he's never heard of a situation like this, but given the heated political climate, it may come up again. It might be wise uh, if he feels that strongly about a particular candidate or about a particular point of view politically that he ought to say, listen, I'm not going to tow you. Uh, it certainly would have saved a lot of time and, and a lot of, I'm sure, frustration. And Cody Shu told me he did not know that McWade was disabled before he left. McWade says he did know and that she ended up waiting about four hours for a tow home. Reporting live in Greenville County, Adrian Acosta, the 4 o'clock news. Okay. So this was a story <laughs> when I first uh, heard it this last week that I thought was an Onion article. Seriously. I, I, I thought it was one of those clickbait sites that was putting putting out this story but it turns out to be completely and totally real so in Asheville North Carolina where our good friend Micah Hanks is from he should be proud beautiful city yes very beautiful city very nice a lot of hippies this girl breaks down or rather she got into an accident on the side of the road fender bender and for some reason, the tow truck company that she called 
was not able to get to her. So they called this other guy that came across from the state line from South Carolina. Well, he gets there and he sees her fill the bird (laughs) bumper sticker on the back of her car and tells her that he's not going to tow her and he's going to call somebody else to tow her. (laughs) And so she ends up waiting for somebody else to come over there. Here's an article about it. (laughs) This is really, uh, to me, I don't know why, but this is really just a funny story. (laughs) I mean, it's just so ridiculous in so many ways. Why a Trump-backing tow truck driver says he refused service to a Sanders supporter. Ken Shoup responded to a woman he was stranded on an interstate in North Carolina on Monday. Shoup is a tow truck driver. It says Shoopy. I think it's pronounced Shoopy because he said it's Shoopy, not Freebie. Shoopy is a tow truck driver. The woman had been involved in a wreck, according to reports. But when Shoopy arrived, he noticed something about the woman's car. Specifically, he noticed that the woman was a supporter of Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, according to Fox Carolina. Every business dealing in recent history that I've had with a socialist-minded person, I haven't got paid, Shoopy told the station. He added, every time I've dealt with these people in recent history, I got burned. With an E, not a U. So Shoopy refused to tell her. He said, I can't tell you, you're a Bernie supporter. The woman, Cassandra McWade, told the Post on Thursday, and I was like, wait, are you serious? He was. Fox Carolina reported, when he saw a bunch of Bernie Sanders stuff, he said he told the woman very politely that he could not tow her car because she was obviously a socialist and advised her to call the government for a tow. (laughs) (laughs) Attempts to reach Shoopy by the Washington Post were unsuccessful Thursday morning. McWade, who said she had a Sanders yard sign visible in her car, as well as a bumper sticker, said she was totally in shock as she watched Shoopy pull away. I was completely flabbergasted, she said. Something came over me. I think the Lord came to me. And he just said, get in the truck and leave, Shoopy, Shoopy told an ABC affiliate. And when I got in my truck, you know, I was so proud because I felt like I had finally drew a line in the sand and stood up for what I believed in. According to Fox Carolina, Shoopy identified himself as a conservative Christian who supports Donald Trump. McWade, however, told the Post that she felt like he didn't exactly exemplify his belief. You don't have to agree with agree on anything just to be kind to one another, she said. Shoopy told the ABC station that he'd had some horrible experiences in the last six months with towing cars for this mindset individuals, in which he said he hasn't received payment for services. They want to argue about a $50 tow bill, and it just turns into a drama and a fuss, he said, according to WLOS. And I said, you know, I'm not going to associate with them, and I'm not going to do any business with them. This is not the first time a statement of political support has seeped into a business deal this election. In March, a Colorado landlord advertised a vacant apartment, but indicated in the listing that he wouldn't rent to Trump voters. I don't know what to do anymore about what's going on in this country, the landlord Mark Holmes told the Daily Sentinel, a newspaper in Grand Junction. It's just a mess. The Daily Sentinel reported that at least one caller left a voicemail for Holmes saying that his policy violated anti-discriminatory federal housing regulations. A spokesman for the Department of Housing and Urban Development told the newspaper that wasn't the case. This has nothing to do with the Fair Housing Act, HUD spokesman Jerry Brown told the Daily Sentinel. Okay. <laughs> Rob? Yeah? I'd like to get your thoughts on that little story there. 
<sighs> well, <laughs> like you said, it's just pretty silly. I mean, extremely. I don't even know where to begin picking it apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess this was a man that just had enough of something of being argued with. And, and what I think is so funny, what I think is so hilarious of this story is that he had typified these birdie supporters as being cheap people that argued about a $50 yeah. tow bill. And, <laughs> well, and from the sounds of it, he wasted a bunch of his time going out there just to realize he wasn't going <laughs> to try to even get, make money in this situation. He wasn't going to put here. up with it anymore. <laughs> And I love I, I also what I love though too is like he tried to justify it using religion too. Oh yeah, I heard that. Like yeah. like 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 the Jesus Lord told to him, him that Jesus spoke to him and told him not to tow this lady, and leave felt, her ass on the side of the road. He felt vindicated when he got back in that truck and drove away. Uh, he felt good. Yeah. Well, uh, well, a couple of things that I found kind of interesting. Um, <sighs> nowhere in the interviews. There's that interview that we did, that that we just played, and there was another one from another um, news station, I think in Asheville or Charlotte. That uh, none of the interviews does he ever come out and say that he's a Trump supporter. Uh, actually, he probably is a Trump supporter, but he never actually comes out and says it. The news reporters actually say that. And they show like this shot of, I guess it was what his is his house and his uh, his Trump sign in the yard. But he never actually comes out and typifies himself as a Trump supporter. His just his whole thing was just that he had a problem with with getting paid, I guess, right. and feeling that he had actually stuck it to somebody. Uh, another thing that I found interesting about this. Was I was watching a movie on Netflix, a documentary uh, called Requiem for the American Dream. And it's basically uh, Noam Chomsky, the linguist and political philosopher. And he's very much on the, I typify him as very like on the left side of the spectrum. But he talks about how corporations have basically taken over this country. You know, this is his point of view. And he goes through this long list of 10 ideas that uh, the establishment has used to reduce, basically reduce democracy in this country in favor of a form of corporatism. And he talks about how one of those is to kind of separate people so far from each other to where they will not work together in a community. And if there's any deeper thing other than just how just damn hilarious this this is, this situation is, I would glean that from this situation. That like you just like people are so divided and so separated, they will not even help each other. And I like the Washington Post article because it actually makes the point that somebody else in Colorado was discriminating against people if they wanted to vote for Trump. Right. <laughs> so People need to calm down, man. This election, and by the way, in the last week, Cruz has dropped out. Kasich has dropped out. Trump is the presumptive nominee of the of the Republicans, even though he doesn't have all the delegates, but he will get them more than likely. Um, 
it's going to be crazy the next six months from May now all the way through November. And maybe afterwards. And get, yeah. If, yeah, especially, I don't know if it depends on who gets elected, but, you know, it's going to be interesting to see the Republican National Convention, how contentious that is, how contentious the Democratic Convention is going to be. And people are going to be worked into a frenzy. So I'm saying, get ready. Just take it easy, everybody out there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, what did you think about Dr. Furnish? Oh, I thought he was great. Uh, once again, I learned a bunch of new words that I'll look up later. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it was good to delve into and get some backstory on some other topics that we've talked about previously on yeah. the show that I was a little more clueless at the time than, than I am now. That was really cool. And obviously the token stuff, I got to geek oh, out. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we got super geeking at the end of that, in, in, end of that one. Um. Yeah, I really appreciate him coming on and being a part of it. Um, we talked about some basic stuff about Islam that I think a lot of people we just that that they they don't understand. Yeah, I didn't know. You know, most of that. And and he's and I, and I think he's very fair in his assessment. I like him because he's not he's not politicizing anything. He's just saying, look, this is the way it is. Right. This yeah. Is- other interviews that I've heard with him. He usually castigates both the right and the left and says, you know, we need to take that out of the equation, our politics, and look at what's going on there with their religion and say, you know, this is the way things are over there. And uh, I found it very extremely interesting. Uh, Anything else you want to add, Rob? I think we're about ready to call it a night. No, I think that about does it. Yep. Well, I'm sure if Luke were here, he'd have some smart, comment to to say but uh we will have or we will be rather in minneapolis very very soon and uh like we said before we're looking really looking forward to it it's gonna be quite a trip for us but uh guys if anybody is out there that's listening we will be there paradigm symposium we will be at the templar lodge in st louis park minneapolis uh com. you can you'll find us there we will be in the vendor room hanging out and some of us may actually be watching speakers as well and we will be doing interviews so guys uh want to thank you guys for listening and we will be back in a couple weeks with another interview on conspiranormal
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.